This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We are covering episodes one and two of The Big O 2, or episodes 14 and 15 of The Big O in its totality, um, depending on the nomenclature you're using. PMC, how are you? We're recording this hours before Valentine's Day. You know what I love? I love The Big O. I think you're going to tell me that you love tomatoes. It's I just, do love tomatoes, it too. Is the, it is that, that time of year, that perfect time of year to think about. Well, did you know it's not only it's not only Valentine's Day, Stephen. It's combination Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday. Oh. Even, double, even double more header. powerful. That's, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like that's thematically appropriate for our discussion, but I don't can't quite fit it together. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop it as we go along. The old men are going to that derelict church, yeah. singing the hymns but not knowing why. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Andy, you're our guest of honor. I, I wanted more of like a, a rousing preamble there, but I'm too tired tonight. Welcome, <laughs> Andy, dear friend of the podcast. Engine Veer on social media. Thank you guys for having me. As is true for all the past times I've been a guest on Giant Robot FM, it is a pleasure, a distinct pleasure, and an equal pleasure this time as well. I feel like I've been podcasting up Big O for ever, and I've... PMC and I have been podcasting for five years. We've covered her twice now, season one, once on the old pod, once on Giant Robot FM. And I've rewatched it several times, often in preparation for that coverage. So I feel like Big O has been with me over my podcasting journey. I feel like I can never escape it. And it's not really something I would figure anybody in their right mind would want to escape either. Yeah. It's also an eminently rewatchable show. I'm speaking of season one here. For the listeners who don't know, I'm going into season two completely ignorant. I know a few things. Uh, I should say at the beginning, like I'm 90% in the dark. The 10% is just vibes. So if I'm like bumping on something, you might go, Steven's being really astute here. And maybe I am, but also I might be pulling on something I like I'm misremembering on social media. So, you know, credit can't always go to me if I'm like, oh, right on the money about something. Hmm. Could have just been a memory implanted into you. It's hard to say. That's true. That's true. Andy, before we jump right in, you chose, so we, you had first dibs on what, which episodes to cover. And I think last time, you also had first dibs last time around, but you chose episodes closer to the middle. This time around, you chose episodes 14 and 15 and 18 and 19 why these first two episodes i wanted to talk about these two episodes in particular because they were among the first four episodes i ever saw of ah, big o that's right um are there i guess in my own perhaps arrogance um there's a lot of stuff in these two episodes that really set the scene for season two that I also just personally wanted to make sure got covered mm. and were explained, air quotes, to the audience. Because these, especially the first episode and very much so the the second, uh, episode 15, there's a lot of obtuse elements to these two episodes that if you just, if you just come into them blind or if you come into them not necessarily 
having had time to really digest them can kind of screw you up for the rest of the season and perhaps, like in my case, for the next eight years that you watch it. (laughs) Um, It's taken me over a decade to kind of straighten out these two episodes, if not most of the episodes in season two. And to be fair, some episodes in season one. And so to help everyone get on the right foot, I felt I could give a lot to these two episodes. No, it's it's worthwhile. I'm glad you're. It's a worthwhile endeavor you're on because I was a little strapped for time when I was writing these notes, and I was kind of like working through the intricacies of the plot for episode 15. So I actually brought up a summary just to fact check. I was getting everything right because otherwise it's just too much freeze framing. I'm like, I can't, I only have ten minutes. <laughs> my daughter's on my lap. Right. Now, oh, one quick correction. I'm glad you actually brought up the DVD you purchased. And you kind of allu- you kind of mentioned this in our history episode. When I talked about the domestic DVD releases for the Big O2, I jumped right to the box set and forgot to mention that those Big O2 DVDs got individual releases as well a few months before that Big O2 box set came out. Correct. It was on my mind this whole week. I was like, damn it. I'm glad Andy <laughs> pointed that out. And it was that... Season 2, Volume 1 DVD was, the, of course, the first one that I found. One fateful day, I believe, March or April 2006 at our local Dollar General when they, I guess they still carry DVDs, but you know, does America even make a, um, anime DVDs anymore? I guess a few people do, but usually they're Blu-rays uh, and they're not sold in stores. And I remember pretty distinctly, I was there with my uh, mother and brother, and my brother comes over to me and says, hey, do you remember this show? And he shows me Big O, and I'm like, I, no, I, I don't know anything about it. He's like, you know, it's that it's that show that kind of looked like Batman. Oh, right, okay, the one with, okay, yeah, the, the one we always thought was Batman, and it wasn't. Ah, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot, 2006, Andy says. And then fast forward, what, 18 years later, and, and here we are. <laughs> Give, giving this this oft-forgotten anime a, just a, a second chance, you know, and then, you know, it consumes you. I'm going to go to my, I have a dollar store in walking distance. PMC can attest we walked past it like a month ago. And I'm going to go there tomorrow and see if I can find anything. Because they sell DVDs, so I'm going to go see if I could find anything that's going to set me on a life's quest. To, <laughs> <laughs> it'll probably be some Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey rom-com from like 2011. Stephen Hero walks to his local Dollar General or Dollar Tree, finds a DVD copy of G Savior. Oh. And the rest is history. <laughs> I'll definitely make sure to put that on social media if I find it. I have come across mm. some anime there, but it's nothing to write home about. No diamonds mm. in the rough. No. I did. The best thing I found there, like um, enthusiast wise, was a. I haven't seen Twin Peaks. I know it's one of my one of my sins. But one of the Twin Peaks books, the official books that were put out, um, like kind of filling in the gaps, like what's happening in the fucked up city. I can't the co sh- the the co showrunner with Lynch, Mark Frost, I think, wrote them. There's two of them. They had like five copies of Volume Two. I picked up one. Hmm. That's the best find I found there. Hmm. The one uh, it's funny that you mentioned a timeline of of 18 years because I also had a I had a a 2006 moment myself this week where I was I did a speed run of a PlayStation 1 game and no one had done a speed run before and the only evidence I found on the internet of someone thinking about this game as a speed run 
was a forums post from 2006 in which someone requested that someone do a speedrun of this game. And I thought maybe it'd be funny if I could try and find this person who had requested this from, from an SDA forums post. And it turns out they had already found me. Ooh, they that's, were, a, that's a, that's they a were, big O plot. They were one of 30 <laughs> followers of the, the Kalik category on Twitch.tv. And so they had seen me playing the game. And they, and they and so they were watching the stream when I was like, who is this lonely Bob who asked oh, for wow. a speed run? And, and so they, <laughs> they found me before I could ever go searching for them. You know, man, memories are like how, that. How life affirming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of Matthew McConaughey, it all comes for a circle. Yeah. Time, time's a flat circle. Actually, by talking about the DVDs, it's a perfect segue to our final bit before jumping into episode or the, the season two premiere. When this podcast comes out, it'll be called The Big O 2, episodes one and two, just because I like the idea of like separating our Big O coverage in the feed. And it makes more sense to, if I'm t- referring it to it as Big O 2, referring it to it as episodes one and two. But more co- generally, we'll refer to it as, I'm sure, episodes 14 and 15. But um, last time we covered The Big O, we had these great in-character episode summaries um, from the perspective of Roger, Dan, Dorothy. Was there another perspective, Andy, or those are the three? Ooh, there was either another one by Norman or Angel. I thought it repeated. It could. Mm -hmm. Hey, there might be a really good website where we can see this. (laughs) (laughs) The website I pulled these from. All right, so the first one is... Seems like it's written by the. Actually, let's see. Yes, the first one's written from Roger's perspective. Mm. Uh, the second one seems to be uh, Dorothy's is on season on um, volume two. Three is Dan, and four is Roger again. Okay, mm. uh, this is Roger Smith. Apparently, I need a new lock on my office door, as it seems everyone has been rifling through my case files lately. That does I love happen. those. Yeah, those are good bits. And they gave the DVDs so much personality. I regret to inform you, the listener, that um, those do not return for these season two DVDs. But there is back-of-the-box copy that basically functions as de facto episode summaries. Now, this technically covers episodes 14 through 17. There are four episodes on disc one. Um, I'm not going to have PMC reread this next episode, but he'll be back two episodes mm-hmm. from now with some new summaries. Uh, PMC, I know it's been a while, but will you do us the pleasure of reading the volume one description courtesy of Bondi Entertainment circa 2004? The Big O caused quite a stir when it debuted in America with its unique style, amazing characters, and captivating story. It garnered a unique and fanatical audience. And because of its popularity in the U.S., a second series was born. Now, you can own a piece of anime history. When we last saw Roger Smith, he was about to defend his home of Paradigm City against three invading robots. Now, the battle is over, and Roger Smith seems to have lost his memory. He is plagued by doubts about who he is and the world he lives in, and he keeps having these strange flashbacks to what exactly? This new season of The Big O has it all. A mystery to unravel, old enemies to fight, new enemies to discover, and more clues to the cataclysmic event that happened 40 years ago. Episode 
One slash fourteen. Roger the Wanderer. The premiere picks up immediately where the season one cliffhanger leaves off as a trio of Megaduces approaches Paradigm City from the sea. As Roger, who's piloting the Big O, engages these belligerents, the show cuts to his various associates who speak cryptically about the status quo. As Roger winds up the first punch, he declares that people are not ruled by their memories. I was very close to doing a a surprise bit at the beginning, um, because I was very taken by um, Gordon's line. I love how all the, these little bits are the, these characters looking directly at the camera as if they're on the office or something. But you have Gordon Rosewater in a tomato field looking directly at the camera. Just picture that as I read this. Because I, I was almost so close to starting the podcast. This is Giant Robot FM. The world destroyed by a cataclysm. The power of God wielded by man. Giant robots run amok. Everything is a lie. Has a certain ring to it. You know, these, uh, the fight is one thing, and I'll come back to that for a second. But these little character vignettes, I like how, I just, A, I just like them. Because they are just kind of, you know, reiterating some big questions from season one. And they're also just, they're seemingly all directed towards Roger. And they're also kind of like, hey, you're not supposed to know that kind of questions which really sets the audience uh, on on edge but then I also like how they get further and further ex- more exaggerated because I think uh, one of them's Dan he's just in a diner Norman's just in a staircase going down to the hangar then Schwartzwald is in like a flooded room and it's it just and they like you said Gordon's in that uh, tomato field and it's like ooh, I like these kind of surrealist vignettes of people asking really hard questions they may or may not be supposed to know. Immediately, too, I'm like, if I didn't do, like, a whole history breakdown in this, I'd be like, ah, yes, they gave the keys completely to Konaka here. Like, this has (laughs) Konaka's fingerprints all over it. And it's not a criticism. Um, He has a very distinct style. But you you could tell the, the, the tone, the tonal shift right at the beginning. Yeah, I think I I noted here is like with all these these vignettes and these characters asking these huge questions, I know it's supposed to prime the audience into the same mindset as Roger. And we see this later in the episode. It reminded me of uh, a line from I forget which poem, but it's from Edgar Allan Poe. And the reason I know the line is because it was used in the Silicon Knights game Eternal Darkness, where it's deep into that darkness peering. Long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. And we see a lot, of, that's basically the entirety of the episode, and I, I really like that. Andy, that was very good, I got goosebumps. <laughs> After pressing his attack, Roger is on the back foot as he struggles against his opponents one of which severs the Big O's arm. Grappling not only with the immediacy of the fight, but the existential dilemma of his identity, Roger rhetorically yells, Who am I? So obviously I have a lot of thoughts about Big O returning. Um, No matter how you feel about the Big O season two, you have to admit that returning to Paradigm City is an unenviable task because you have to follow up on a cliffhanger that was really never meant to be followed up on. You have to introduce new viewers to the show. You have to satisfy corporate and fan expectations 
both of which were arguably at odds. And also, you have to do something new. And I think they succeeded with this opening episode. I really do like the choice of having Roger explore an alternate reality of paradigm. And I feel like that effectively checks off these boxes. Like, working through his existential crisis is a clever way of bringing new viewers up to speed. It addresses lingering questions left in the finale. Because if you think back to episode 13, he's questioning who he is. And it also pivots in a new creative direction. So I have to... The proverbial cap off. I think they did a pretty good job with this. Yeah, I think this. Um, you know, the when I was initially watching this, and I, I found myself almost thinking of it more as a just to sort of talk about the structure of it, thinking of this alternate paradigm because yeah, and it's got direct you know ties. So I think that is the the best way to describe it. But it's just sort of the idea of um a fictional character walking around in a real place, the sort of, you know, to put it in, in Stephen hero terms, you know, Simpson, uh, Homer Simpson comes to the real world kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, where, where Roger Smith suddenly is walking around the actual streets of New York, um, where he, you know, doesn't enjoy his normal privileges and he doesn't actually have uh, any sort of place there. And like, what, what, it, what is that? I mean, obviously we, I, it's one, one of many lenses I'm sure you could apply to this. Um, so yeah, it, it is really, um, it is, it is interesting, and I and I, I think I, I end up liking. We'll, we'll get into it as we kind of talk, tick off the boxes. But I mostly wanted to plant that seed at the beginning to just say, like, you know, is it is it paradigm? Is it the 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 fictional setting that we're normally used to, which is the fake thing, and now Rogers in the real thing? That was sort of the, again my initial reaction to this sequence upon re- revisiting it. Right, and I I do agree with what both of you guys are kind of saying. Where where I got hooked up on this episode years and years and years ago was expecting there to be an answer to any of this and there kind of isn't and the only answers you get are kind of the same answers you get in season one where it's not so much the mystery it's how our characters react to it and instead of it being you know, oh, Instro is worried about his identity, or there's a cat robber. And I, I say that like those aren't terrific episodes. But this is, I'm Roger Smith, I was in the middle of a battle, and now I have no idea where I am. It's, it is an over-exaggeration of everything that was already explored in episode 13, but now two years later, just reiterated for, like you said, the the new audiences that may be coming in and just people who haven't seen Big O in two years. And it, it serves to do that and also set people on their feet to how Big O 2 will be proceeding. This is going to be a cursed comparison. Um, I'm, I'm not doing the, I'm not slandering the Big O season two here, but I, I'm a big community fan and um, I got like community season four vibes from this. Um, which is a season of television I'm not overwhelmingly fond of. If you know anything about the production history of Community, there's a lot of upheaval between seasons three and four. I don't think there was any time delay. The show wasn't canceled or anything. Dan Harmon left the production um, disagreements with executives. He was uh, kicked off the production, uh, and they kind of had like to reset for a season four. And I feel like in both cases, the showrunners took a more introspective and meta approach to relaunch the show, the season four premiere of Community is like equally as introspective. It's much more meta than this is. This isn't real. Well, and there's like I guess like 
vibes of meta-ness here, but nothing to the degree of community. I just, it was on my mind. I'm going to be like comparing The Big O Season 2 to multiple uh, American television shows as we go forward, which is appropriate given the influences of The Big O, I think. Um, but it was on my mind. I don't think I remember Season 4 of Community. Dan Harmon referred to it as the gas leak season, so it was meant to be oh. forgotten. Ah, there, okay, that might do it. There is one stellar episode in season four. Uh, the Dean, played by Jim Rash, directed it, I believe. Uh, oh. Jeff, Jeff Winger and the Dean switch places, a Freaky Friday situation. It's very good. <laughs> the rest is all very forgettable. Mm. From the shoreline, Dastin and the military police unleash a salvo of artillery fire, buying Roger some time. Foreign megaduces, Dastin says. Foreign people. Chewing a tomato, watching the fight from the balcony of Paradigm HQ. Alex Rosewater wonders if Roger has it in him to pilot a big. Alex Rosewater said, does Roger have that big in him? <laughs> all, all I could think. Um, also, just, uh, you know, if you're a, uh, I guess, a, a fan of mecha anime, you know, and you got your mecha series bingo card out, it person takes bite of raw tomato. Uh, just check that square off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it keeps happening. You know, uh, you know. I, I guess maybe you know. Is it, it happens a lot in Gundam? Happens here too. Do we need like a, a, an alignment chart of pro tags or antags eating things? Oh, that might be a good one. Yeah. Like, yeah. so where would Neki Basara and eating that leaf go? Like that that seems like chaotic evil to me. Is that his evil? character is chaotic I was gonna say evil. That's like, a, like that's like to me like eating like that feels very passive eating the leaf as it blows by. True neutral. <laughs> yeah, that's like true neutral, you know. A true neutral action for an objectively chaotic evil character. Yeah. Hmm. Whereas like you know like Alex Rosewater like awful evil, right? You know? He's Right. He is the law. He's but he's yeah. he's standing back, but clearly also evil. Um I would probably need to go to a Denethor, I think, to get uh, like a neutral evil or or chaotic. Oh, yeah. Maybe neutral yeah. evil. <laughs> I like how I said Denethor, and like I didn't have to like say anything more. I'm glad you're both right there with me. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. that the Fat Film trilogy is etched into my brain. If I forget, you know, if I am 95 years old in some sort of retirement community, um, riddled with dementia, I'll still remember those films beat by beat. Once more overwhelmed, the three Megaduces surround the mono-armed Big O, immobilizing it with bolts of electricity. Roger wonders who he is as he loses touch of reality, imagining the cockpit filled with tomatoes before he presumably blacks out. I'm going to take a second to talk about the, the action here. Uh, th this is a kind of action that I don't think we've been quite used to, which is to say... You know, typically, I think the the big O is you know a very one v one, some monster of the week vibes as well as drawing upon. And you know, here we have this three v one fight, and also we have a lot of uncertainty in the form of, uh, you know, the enemies falling into the water and then and then resurfacing. And it really took me back to a film I had the chance to rewatch not too long ago, which is uh, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim, fun kaiju homage, giant robot homage film. And there you have a lot of scenes where it's like the monster's been knocked out and it's fallen under the water. Is it done? 
like no and it jumps out and you know and destroys whatever robot or, or whatever the case might be and you have a little bit of that where you were i think two of the robots resurface and they they start ganging up on the on the big o um just effective i just really like you know it, it, they continue as much as i think as much as season two is going to be you know calling back to things and building a new narrative uh they're still doing all of the good homage stuff that we've loved them doing and i just want to call attention to it you know and this will be a perfect segue for my next note um i want to take a second just to talk about uh, Ross Pierre, Fouché, and Carno, the three foreign megaduces, mm. because their designs are just like they are perfectly weird. Now, mind you, I don't think there's really necessarily a normal looking megaduce to begin with, but even these three look distinctly different than what we've seen in Paradigm already, especially Carno with his off sided head. And those uh, like lines that kind of come up to his head really kind of point to it. He's always been my favorite. And of note, um, this is not distinctly said anywhere, but to me, it seems like Carno has a phonosonic machine in his arsenal of weapons. Um, and we all know that Paradigm was bankrolling um, Mr. Gisang and uh, Amadeus. So did Paradigm get a hold of that technology afterwards? Did they give it to the the pilots or the controllers of the uh, foreign Megaduces? Or I don't know what we can take from that, but it is worth noting that it does seem like he has a phonosonic machine. I once did a meme where I compared the three uh, those three Megaduces uh Pulled from season one uh, to those spy. The, what's the PMC? The Spider-Man meme. The oh, the boys. The, the boys. I forget there's three. It's like it's like Rhino, Scorpion, and the the electricity electricity. The Jamie Fox one. Uh, Shocker and Green Goblin. Yeah, yep. there you go. <laughs> I can't find the the tweet because I didn't have a text on it. It was just I, yeah. You know, did parallel imaging of both of the images. No, they are really good. It's they're really fun. I think too. In like up until that point, I think many of the mega daces that we've seen have been sort of delightfully symmetrical to the point that we are able to then uh, sort of make assumptions based on the logic of their design. Does Big Duo fly? Is the archetype the original mega dace? You know, so like you really are able to sort of run with their design, and these these motherfuckers don't even have symmetry. <laughs> like they're real weird. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with these? I can't fit these. You can't fit them into uh, like a hierarchy in a way that I feel like a lot of the other ones that you could, uh, which is just um, is so effective to me because I, especially being a kid and watching these, I would often try to sort of impose on them some sort of logical progression. Like, aha, now this is the one that has uh, tank treads, and this is the one that flies. Like, flying is always a natural escalation. In every JRPG, you eventually get an airship. You know, eventually you would have a Mega Deus that flies. Of course you would. Um, but here, you know, there's a strangeness and oddity uh, that, is, that is unsettling that just makes them mm, so effective. Yeah, there's an asymmetry to their designs, which is off-putting in the right ways. It's kind of like... Sid's fucked up toys from Toy Story. <laughs> like when they come shambling out. 
similar vibes. Mm-hmm. Or actually, you know what? Another series that did this kind of thing really well was um, I forget the term for it, but uh, you know, in, in Steven Universe, you have like most of the gems who are just kind of pretty aesthetic, like they they look like what they're supposed to look like generally. Uh, but at one point, they find like like little little screwed up goobers who are just sort of like clusters of broken fragmented gems like hooked together. I forget. There's a I think there's a term for it whenever it comes up. But again, that's another kind of example of like you know again misfit toys. Mm. Cut to a pre-lapsarian New York or Paradigm City as commuters hustle and bustle on their way to work. A throng of passengers exit a subway car in full view of a downcast and disheveled Roger who's sitting slumped against the cold concrete wall. A woman gives him some money. After splashing some cold water on his face, Roger emerges into the open air of the undomed city. Down on his luck, Roger reminds me a lot of, like, I'm using this colloquially, this this adjective, Hobo Phoenix, uh, his redesign from Apollo Justice, the fourth Phoenix Wright game. Um, and, again, like with The Big O 2 or even Community Season 4, that's a sequel that tried to reinvent itself after a prolonged absence. And I started thinking about it. You could draw some interesting connections between Phoenix and Roger. Like, both are competent at their jobs, but also kind of goofy figures. So it's weird. You're subverting the audience's expectations in some really fun ways. Um, I can imagine... I can't remember back to all the advertisements for the Big O2, but I can imagine them running pretty hard with this angle because it really does... uh, force the audience or the the watchers of those commercials to go what happened to roger i'm interested now what happened to him yeah there's a lot of mystery that immediately comes out and it's you know again it's the same thing anytime you have the your beloved central character and they're they're in dire straits or they're you know some substantial redesign um it's you know it's very very fun and the whole time i mean they're having so much fun in the sequence too because they have the you worry when you see roger down on the subway and the subway platform there's a giant tomato juice sign behind him, which is which is just so much fun. Um, and also, I think too, uh, I don't know how much we're gonna we're gonna bring it up because it may just be an ongoing concern. We can you can you can temperature check our, our guests as we go along. But something that we've talked a lot about in the run up to Big O two is the change in in animation. And I think for me, I, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a low standards guy. I'm pretty happy with everything so far. In fact, to me, I I was surprised at how effective, given I don't know, I guess the the reputation. But you do notice that like you are in a different place. That like the sunlight is immediately noticeable. An operational subway <laughs> is immediately noticeable. Uh, you know all these different things, and I, and I really like getting to see those things in what I can readily identify as the big O's style. You know, I think that is, um, they, they do it effectively. Like, yeah, you can notice the flashbacks sometimes, but, um, I was, I was pretty happy. And, and also too, I think maybe in this case, you can even argue that the flashbacks being from, you know, dark, dingy paradigm city. And then perhaps these New York sequences being more light filled, almost, Oh, for this episode, at least, you know, works to its advantage. Yeah, I think to your point, a lot of the the not great things about the animation in season two. I'm sure you've got you know the usage of the cell in with the usage of the digipaint, which is one thing. 
for me, the, one of the things that sticks out is like the mouth flaps are just not very well calculated. They just seem to run and then stop. You notice that on like your fifth watch. You probably won't really care about it now. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the uh, some of the atmosphere doesn't really carry over quite as well. Some of the robot stuff might be uh, not as clearly well planned, but overall, I think it it does it is effective. It does capture what is supposed to be there, even if some of the colors just feel like they're saran wrapped most of the time. I am surprised how much the animation hasn't been bothering me, especially with the character stuff. It's the mech stuff because I feel like Katayama's sense of scale is really blunted by the digipate. And I, mm. my brain turns off more with the mech fights. The mech fights in season one are awe inspiring. Like the big duo, duo fight, um, like peak when, as, uh, as, as far as mech fights go. I, don't, I haven't really glommed on with interest to any of the fights so far in season two. Not that there have been that many in these opening two episodes. Well, I, will, I will say to that point, I will skip back just a little bit. The opening fight, I couldn't imagine waiting two years and then just jumping right into that. You've got three against one. You've got double sudden impact. For me, there's a lot going on there. Um, you may find yourself being a little bit right in some choice fights and some choice scenes later on. Um, but these, this opening fight was enough for me in 2006. The only thing that really messes me up are fingers. Something about fingers in this season messes me up. That's a, I don't have a more more articulate thought there, but I feel like I notice them much more now. I'm just imagining the stingers at the end of each Big O episode pick up the phone. It's just PMC's voice. Something about those fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Human fingers, mech fingers, or both? Human fingers. That's what I thought. They're mm. like they're like the shape of butter knives. <laughs> it's very strange. Now that now that I'm thinking about it, you're not wrong. Hmm. Oh, one more part for this scene, too. I thought it was interesting, I think, to have Roger be first seen in the subway, an area where all of Paradigm, including he himself, are afraid of going in his version of Paradigm, and a place Roger spoke to specifically where some people lived, either by choice or, or not by choice. And it puts an interesting spin on Roger to put him in such... Not just a lowly place, but such a place that and he finds himself waking up so comfortably, and yet it was a place that, you know, even he, uh, he being the only person who went down even several layers, was afraid of going even further than that. Right. The, 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 the premise was that he could move the bigger O around the city undetected because he alone was willing to go into that level of subterranean territory but even beyond that you know he, he would experience uh, the same terror that drove others away god i could go watch that episode right now underground terror maybe <laughs> maybe the all-time greatest episode of anime i could just gosh i'm and i i remind i am not a rewatch person generally speaking like i do not just rewatch things um but yeah no i could do that i could i could watch that episode roger monologues to himself as he wanders the city looking for familiar landmarks. What is this place? Is this Paradigm City? The city I know?
here. I was... I was in the middle of a fight. He stops at a bar, no doubt hoping to find Big Ear, but is met with an angry customer who brandishes a knife as he accuses Roger of taking his seat. Roger, clearly not welcomed, leaves. So this this speakeasy section is, is interesting, especially comparing it to the, the bank section, which we'll get to in a second. But you have a situation where I think the bartender, either formally or informally, uh, you know, keep, like clues in a bouncer to go to go kick Roger out because obviously Roger looks like shit. And, you know, and so that, that interaction happens. Roger kind of, you know, very passively leaves. The the guy who's doing the bouncing, is he is he meant to correspond to somebody from season one? Like just an appearance? Like I feel like he almost looked like the saxophonist, but not quite. Like almost like what Gene? Oliver. Oliver. Gene. Uh, this is me. I every like is what's his name <laughs> Goober? Like uh, yeah, that's great. Thanks, PMC. Uh <laughs> you know, I hadn't actually thought about that before. Uh, that he was supposed to be someone in particular. Yeah. I was thinking it might have been one of um, Beck's henchmen from episode one and mm. two. I'm trying to think back, and they don't necessarily look similar enough. But now that you bring up Oliver, uh, the bouncer and Oliver's hair is kind of similar. It has that same kind of wave to it. Yeah. Oliver's was obviously longer. Right. It doesn't have the but... long hair, but it does have the wave on the bang. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was, cause mm. I, I, and again, it, it didn't seem necessarily important, but the fact that we do encounter back at the bank was having me think like, well, if I looked at these characters, cause I, I don't think the, um, I mean the, the, the bartender looks a little bit like the, uh, the bouncer that Roger screws up at Nightingale, the one with the, the, like the, the, the dread hair. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I couldn't place the, uh, whoever's sitting in big ear seat. No. That would be something to consider, though, because that actually leads into what I was going to say about this scene is that it's it's interesting to see how almost the same things are. But depending on how you read this episode, is it simply with new characters with the original characters as they were or different people entirely in almost the same roles? And it made me think of uh, a director reusing their favorite actors for new roles in new movies. And you think about Leone and Eastwood, um, uh, Shyamalan and Bruce Willis, uh, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. It's just that Roger and maybe nobody got the message or that Roger exists outside of the message or perhaps the script here in this version of Paradigm City. But we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, there's kind of a you find yourself in a, in a version without you. Uh, I had uh, I think it was last year watched a Netflix show with my spouse called Dark, and it was a like German t- like time travel drama. Um, I frankly I don't recommend it. I was annoyed by the ending <laughs> in the way that I'm. I was annoyed with Dark in the same way that I was deeply annoyed with Thirteen Sentinels, um, when, in which I feel that the the mystery of the setting under undermined uh, the characters, which is a complaint I seem to have a lot. I guess it's just sort of sort of how I am. But but what I'm getting to in, in comparing those is that at one point the character finds himself in an, in a parallel setting in which they were never born. And so that's kind of a you know speaks to almost a and it's a wonderful life sort of situation perhaps. 
He continues to meander the city streets, lost in thought. A city without domes, warm sunlight. People here haven't lost their memory. What is this place? Where should I go? He ends up at his old penthouse apartment, only to find that it's a bank. Not only that, but Beck is the manager. Get out of my home, Beck. Get out. Roger yells as security guards rush to apprehend him. Beck monologues a bit about the lower classes, social welfare, and the delusions of this unfamiliar and unkempt man before Roger tries, in vain, to summon the big O. The art direction here is purposefully evoking mid-century New York City, like with the architecture, automobiles, and clothing, which I think is really neat. Uh, Roger's penthouse-turned-bank looks especially authentic. It's a, like a, They're going for a recreation of a Depression-era bank here. It has very like Art Deco vibes. I used to teach in Camden, which is a city uh, right across the river from Philadelphia. It's in New Jersey, uh, which for various reasons is full of similar buildings. Uh, the interior of the bank I sometimes went to while I was working there, the Camden Trust Building, looks just like Beck's Bank. I brought up some old photos of it. Uh, they clearly did their research here. Yeah, it's really, uh, it is, <laughs> this whole comparison, it's, it's kind of funny I brought up the It's Wonderful Life thing a moment ago, because here we have, it's like the flip, right, is that the 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 bank is here instead of the bank not being here, instead of the bank going mm. out of business. You, you, know, what, <laughs> what, you, you weren't in this world, and so we didn't destroy the bank. Um but we, we see Roger experiencing uh, this this loss of privilege, and I, I, I already suggested I was a, comparing and contrasting the speakeasy and the bank. And here we have a, you know, he's experiencing this loss of privilege in both locations, and he is reacting uh, much more harshly to this one, which I think makes sense. You know, it, it is something that he identifies as his home, as sort of the, I guess, the core of, of, who, uh, of who he remembers being. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm it, it's, it's interesting. And also to put Beck of all people at the, the sort of, at the root of that as well, because Beck is not someone that I think we ever, <laughs> we ever really took seriously in, in the first season. And yet here he is, I, you know, uh, apparently a serious person somewhat. Right. I think to your point too, it's, it's not just that it's Beck who has taken over, uh, Roger's, house which you like i think you said was kind of the, the core expression of his existence in that in that kind of regard it's also just the fact that it is beck right beck the man who um hacked dorothy to try to kill roger uh and has just been a thorn in his side this whole time that's just that's just not that's not even just salt in the wound that's salt lemon juice and everything else uh and there's actually well, one thing off of that I wanted to mention, which I thought was interesting, and this this comes to what Michael Toole was saying on our history episode, that when he had watched this season two again in preparation, and every time he watches it, he finds something new to appreciate. Well, that happened to me just skimming through these episodes. I thought it was interesting that in this, quote, real paradigm, it's Beck runs a bank. And in the show's version of Paradigm, in Roger's Paradigm, Beck's first crime is to steal printing plates from a bank. And depending on which way we're going, which one's the real Paradigm, which one's not, is this some kind of, like, sick joke? If it's uh, going 
reverse, but it's going forward. Is this some kind of imprinted memory, something that Beck still remembers from prior to the event? That's like this is this is still something I know I have an association with, but now I'm going to go about it the wrong way. And I yeah. think, um, well, go ahead. I was going to say it's it is worthwhile to to explore that relationship and to say you know and to the extent that which which you know Rogers home versus not Rogers home, but also for Beck. You know, is he <laughs> a, like a banker who's clearly smarmy? Like, I don't think we can look at Banks' conduct in this setting and see like, yeah, he's upstanding now. No, that's not. You know, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying this is like mirror Bizarro, mirror universe back. It is uh, the the axis upon which he is reflected is is really one of privilege. It's not one of like complete opposites. Hmm. He is a privileged crook now, as opposed to <laughs> a, 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 you know down on his luck crook. Yeah, respectable. It's funny mm-hmm. to see him uh, like lecture about social welfare too, because in the alternate paradigm city where we're introduced to Beck, if those support systems existed, perhaps he wouldn't have resorted to a life of crime. And then I would also, since we're talking about architecture, I would be remiss, and I would be ashamed of myself if I did not bring this up. Yes, eagle-eyed viewers. The effigies on the building as Roger walks out from beneath the subway and looks up. They are indeed each of the gargoyles from the Disney show Gargoyles. Mm, there you go. I think Good that was pointed call. out to me like eight or nine years ago. And it's just every time I make a thread, every time I talk about this episode, I was like, okay, guys, yes, yes, it's the gargoyles. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I look at Andy's little window with his with him talking, I always think of Jonathan Frakes, so it's appropriate that you bring up gargoyles. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I just have my uh, Star Trek, the original series, command robe on instead. They did have a next generation red one, but I soft gold things are more important to me. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a smart choice. Now, if they had a red original series robot I would I would have gotten that one instead cuz that's engineering. Mm. Once again, Roger's back on the streets. Take a drink every time I have to say that. When I was typing these notes as like I need another word for wander <laughs> or meander. Roger's back on the streets as day turns to night. During his nocturnal walk, he witnesses Dorothy and Timothy Wainwright exit a taxi on their way to a dinner or show or both. This is a city I don't know. With my scruffy clothes, I feel like I'm behind the times. Or maybe it's the other way around. In any case, this is a time I know nothing about. These are memories I'm not familiar with. Who am I? What have I become? I could never develop any sense of pride working for the military police. Defending law and order in Paradigm City as one of Dan Dostin's men. So, I used some incident or other as a pretext to leave the force. It wasn't much longer after that when I met him. When I met Big O. Cut to a silhouetted Roger in an empty theater watching a dramatized version of his first meeting with Norman. His soon-to-be butler introduces himself, telling a confused Roger who's been waiting that he's been waiting many years for his master to arrive. During this time, he has diligently performed maintenance on it 
What do you mean, it? Roger asked. I have simply called it the Great Big O. Norman theatrically answers. The conceit of a stage play here is very clever. It's also very Konaka. It functions mm-hmm. on a lot of levels. Like, obviously, this has been present from the beginning with episodes being called acts. At this point, uh, th- this is me, Stephen, speaking, like with the with ignorance as to what comes in the future. But I do wonder if this theming has more to do with characterization, like Roger learning more about himself, or it if it has anything to do with the mystery of paradigm. Yeah. I'm watching faces intently. There, there's a, there's a line here to be to be asked about, and I think this goes back to the, um, uh, you know, the, the functional and thematic premises that we're dealing with, which is the introduction or reintroduction of a TV show that hasn't been on for two years, and the introduction of uh, mysteries, especially if we're going to be you know doing all these callbacks to things that specifically happen, to things that are generally. Uh, you know, a mystery of of what's uh, going on with with Roger and or Paradigm City. Um, yeah, it's you know, it's it's fun. It's very um, it, it is, and it's also interesting too to I think call to um, this is something we've talked about a little bit with um the the cast, but you know the extension the extent to which stage actors were used uh in the the voice work of the big o mm. um certainly i guess it's, it's more relevant i think to the the japanese voice cast uh, but nevertheless you know interesting to contemplate and there's also the audio drama too mm-hmm. um which of course goes runs wild with the conceit of a stage play and has a lot of fun with it and the one thing that always stuck out to me with this and actually before i say that you you brought up that there has been, you know, this theming has been present since the beginning with the episodes being called Acts. Um, note also, and you probably already know this, but when Big O is called to appear, it's always action and showtime. You know, that there is cast in the name of God, ye not guilty. And so that, that the stage elements do, they've already been existing. And I think you will be, um, interested to see just how far they go. So you're you're probably on the right track with that one, but I'll leave that to you to figure out. Ooh, tantalizing. And then also, uh, this is the thing I was gonna say. I've thought about this one for for a while now. It's something that always struck me about this scene. Maybe I'm sure what it says, but I'm not gonna say here uh, just to preserve the ignorance of my hosts. But it always struck me odd that between the two, not that Norman is doing, you know, some, I don't know, some classic theatrical actor's best performance, but I've always been, it's always been, it's always struck me how obviously bad of a job Roger is doing on this stage. Whereas Norman's doing a comparatively (laughs) great job and Rogers is very, very poor at what he's doing. I don't know what that says. I may have some ideas I can't really share at this point in your journey, but there'll be something to perhaps remember. Yeah, he kind of gets in, like, segs into this mode in season one when he is talking to Angel and takes on, like, a dramatic flair. I remember the episode, they're in the building underwater, and he talks about, mm-hmm. like, I'm not quoting a verbatim here, but like rescuing a damsel in distress, and he like puts on that faux thespian voice. Um, the acting here is noticeably worse, but I do get a similar energy. 
Here we are stuck underwater together, and she won't even throw herself into my arms. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Such a banger episode. Oh, yeah. Also, speaking of Norman, I get the sense that Norman, who is more of a bit character in the first season, will be taking on a more important role in the second. Um, I think Alan, Oppenheim- Alan Oppenheimer does a fine job. I do miss Milton James. Uh, Mike Tool pointed this out in the history episode. I do miss, like, the... Oh, I just forgot. Batman's butler. The Alfred. The Alfredness of uh mm-hmm. Milton James's performance. Yeah, I can't not I can't unhear Skeletor now. Thanks a lot, Mike. <laughs> oh, uh, Alan Oppenheimer shows up in an episode of Deep Space Nine as a Klingon ambassador. I think it's the episode where it's it's uh it's either the episode where they have to deal with the Kales clone or it's the de- episode where they have to deal with the fallout of the Kales clone. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Alan Oppenheimer's in it. He's playing a Klingon. He says the word memories and I I lost it when that happened. I lost it just knowing that Norman Berg was in Star Trek, which is not the only Star Trek connection that Big O has. Um you know, the voice of Alex Rosewater played Apollo in the original series among other things. Uh, but just to know that connection, to hear him and then have him say key terms from Big O was, it, it was a thrill. But right, Milton James has, he has something else. He has a certain je ne sais quoi about his representation of just kind of a, not a doting Norman, but just a, I don't know, a more old school feeling kind of proper butler than Alan Oppenheimer necessarily brings to the same role. Out of curiosity, I looked it up. Alan Oppenheimer is still with us. He's 93. One of his first film roles was in 1966 in, I, I think, the American version of a Gamera film, Gamera the Invincible. Oh. He plays a doctor. And he's still working up until the present, uh, 2022 Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers as He-Man and Skeletor. Oh. There you go. Okay. I mean, if you got it, sell it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, especially if he can do it remotely, I'm sure he's thrilled. About, oh, oh yeah, about, about how production changes have occurred after COVID. Roger sitting on a park bench, reading a newspaper with a Big O comic, despairs over the weight of these memories. The Big O, it was waiting for me, but I've lost any proof that that's what really happened. That my memories were mistaken from the very beginning. Who was that I? Who was that I was portraying? So I already I just brought this up the the functional thematic intersection, but I wanted to sort of check with you, uh, with you, Stephen. Is is this working for you? Do you feel like you've been you've been reintroduced to things? Do you think this is? Do you think this was working for viewers? <laughs> my my impression is the answer is no, given how how Mike Tool was describing that initial reaction. But like, I am just trying to imagine how this would have landed for people on the ground floor which i i don't know like i guess i don't think any of us works i know andy you already went over your story of of how you you discovered this and certainly this i think worked for you in your context but that was not the context of broadcast right yeah i mentioned it checks those boxes i don't think it it does it successfully but it makes an attempt at it if I were watching, if I was going to the Big O season two blind, I would have, I would know, 
I would have a lot of trouble, obviously, following the plot threads. It works for me, the viewer, with context of season one. I do like how much it experiments with storytelling structure. It's very indulgent in some very Stephen Hero ways, which I appreciate. I like the metatextual uh, elements here, you know, reading a newspaper with a big O comic. I like the callbacks to season one. Um, it's Everything's still shrouded in mystery, so it still has that atmospheric pull. But you are right to point out that if you were a viewer with no context to the Big O, it would be very tough to track. You could you could get little bits. I think the Norman and Roger interaction, and then Roger thinking, you know, you know that he leaves the military police. Um, you know that he kind of wander, like walks ass backwards into acquiring this mega deus. You get some like loose threads, but nothing really substantial and a, nothing really coherent either. It's funny that you kind of put it that way, um, because when I got this DVD, uh, Season 2, Volume 1, of course, I had less than zero context running right into it. I was immediately enamored by it. I knew I had to have more of whatever this was trying to say, and I think it really was just the the sheer mystery and avant-garde surrealism, whether I knew to call it that or not was enough to be like, okay, this is this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. Also, this robot's cool. Like, How much more can I find out about this? Luckily, later that year in 2006, Adult Swim re-aired all of Big O, except for episode 25. Um, and so I got my wish. But until then, I actually watched these four episodes at least three times a piece. Just went through that volume one three times because like, I... I really don't know what's going on, but I love this. Maybe I'm the odd one out that it worked for me, but it worked. People have been talking about this in the context of Tenet because I haven't seen Tenet, but Tenet's coming back to theaters this month, I think, for an IMAX re-release. You know, because of all the Christopher Nolan hype recently. And people, like, laud that film because, not because it makes any sense, because Christopher (laughs) Nolan apparently is the first person to say it doesn't. Um, but people call it like a vibes-based movie. Like it's just about the vibes. It's about immersing yourself in experience, not really connecting all the points. And I, that's a, that's a type of film I kind of enjoy a lot. Just allowing the atmosphere to wash over you without necessarily having complete coherence of the plot. Just one as a, thing. Oh. One thing before you go on, um, I wanted to bring up that I like the scene transition between the stage to where Roger is sitting on this bench uh, where he talks about these loathsome false shackles known as memories. Um, It's interesting that when the stage fades to black, just after, or at least we assume, uh, that Roger speaks big O into his watch, um, the rest of that scene that he would be acting out is what is on the pages of the newspaper he's reading. Mm. And so it just kind of says to me, it drives home just how fake everything Roger knew and everything Roger was led to expect is. You know, we see it in the in the framework of a stage play, a very overdone stage play, which is really drives home how fake it is as well. And then fade to black. Now it's a comic book and a newspaper. How more fake could you get? And then I also, I've thought about this for a long time. I don't really think there's anything uh, to it. I've always found it interesting that his last name is Smith, which is 
I think, at least commonly regarded, jokingly or otherwise, as the most common last name in the U.S. So, it's kind of like someone just had to pick a name for a wanderer. They said, ah, Smith. Everyone's Smith. Uh, Roger Smith. So, Yeah, it's like a real, a real David Lucas or whatever, right? Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of memories. It's also appropriate that he's reading a comic in a newspaper. It makes sense given the time period, but also given the influences of the Big O as well. Like I mentioned, like, you know, comic strips that were serialized in the 1930s and 1940s, like The Spirit, for example. Um, Mm. There are only so many things he could read a comic book, you know, a comic strip in in the 1930s reading a newspaper, but still. And then I think... um I don't see a place to pop this in quite perfectly in our notes. I'll bring it up because uh, I don't want to really forget it. It's a, it's a small note, but I think it's kind of interesting that at this point in Roger's journey and fake or real paradigm, uh, it's curious when he is in the theater and he watches Winter Night Phantom, apparently the whole movie, and when it gets to the scene that Dostin described to Roger, the one part of the movie he would know having never seen it, you notice he kind of perks up like, oh, wait, this is the answer to that mystery that Dan had, that in our paradigm had no answer, but then he just lets it go. Like there was something, some kind of connection to who he knew himself as Roger Smith, and that gives him, I don't know, maybe a sense of purpose or a sense of uh, fleeting joy. But then he's like, but I'm still here, and I still have less than nothing I'm just gonna let it go. It it mm. didn't. Ma- it doesn't matter now, even that I have an answer. That's a good. That's that's interesting to reference, especially considering because that question consumes Dan, and Roger's able to let let it go. Mm. Just as I don't know this city, it in return doesn't know me. Roger thinks as he walks through the now rain drenched streets of Paradigm. I'm just a man whose existence has no value or meaning in this place. Thinking over his prior career as a negotiator, he thinks to himself, I was only an actor who played these parts. If those roles were taken away, I would have no reason to exist. uh, This is kind of like building off my previous point, but it makes me wonder how predetermined Roger's meeting with Norman and his connection to the Big O was. Like, was their meeting happenstance? Like I, I mentioned before, that seems that he walked ass backwards into it or was someone pulling the strings like given all this theater imagery it does suggest that there's someone like a wizard of oz like figure behind the scenes delivering a script um putting actors on stage giving stage directions etc etc i like this a lot because it gets to an idea of just sort of like you you know how do you we all tend to impose a narrative on ourselves right we have a, a story of our lives and I think here you you find Roger trying to assemble that is kind of the way I, I look at it, and uh, and there are, you know sometimes it's hard to answer some of these questions. How did you come to end up? Uh, you know, it's like the to bring up the Talking Head song again. You know, how did you wake up in this house with this you know this beautiful wife? Uh, you, you wonder how did this happen, and it's sort of. It's it maybe it's something that you can never answer and it sort of nags at you, which I think um, even putting aside the mysteries of the scenario, I think is is a very relatable relatable sentiment. It's definitely just a lot of Roger wondering if his fate is his own, that if he's um, that if he isn't controlled by his memories, 
or if he is, um, but now he has to wrestle with figuring out whether even the choices he made were truly of his free will or not, or if there is someone always in control. Because he thought, you know, back in episode four, I think a little bit with Underground Terror and also episode 13, and he's like, I know who I am and I make my own choices. And now he's like, but without anything, then who am I? Suddenly, a car light flashes in front of him. Angel, or someone who looks like Angel, but wearing the uniform of an officer of the military police, steps out. They banter a bit before she drives him to an undisclosed location. On the way, Roger begins to feel increasingly uneasy. Tell me where it is you're taking me, he insists. To where you used to come from, she answers. So I swear this podcast is not just going to be me saying, hey, you know what this reminds me of? That being said, I'm going to do it one more time, I swear. Uh, the conceit of this episode reminds me a bit of the Kevin Finnerty arc from The Sopranos. Um, so this is the 60s into The Sopranos episode, well, the end of episode one of season six and the, the rest of season, the episode two, three, and four of season six. Tony's shot. He's in a coma. While he's in this limbo state, his family are looking over him on the hospital bed. But internally, his mind is coping through the trauma by basically inventing an AU where Tony is now a man named Kevin Finnerty, who has no memory of who Tony Soprano is. Navigating this unfamiliar world, Tony, I guess it's more appropriate here to call him Kevin, um, gets closer and closer to his true identity before waking up from his coma. I feel like Kanaka's doing something similar here, putting Roger in an alternate reality to get him to acknowledge who he is. Um, the Sopranos comparison, I think, is doubly appropriate because it highlights the shift away from the episodic storytelling direction that season one used in favor of a more serialized approach that it seems that the Big O2 takes. Yeah, I kind of wrote down that this episode is definitely, it exists not just to remind people from two years ago what the Big O is kind of all about, but also to just so despair in Roger Smith to convict him of his lingering and renewed fear of self that was so uh, of self that was so handily touched on in episode four, the fear of being, or in this case, the fear of not being, as it were, uh, not being anything. I still haven't watched The Sopranos, Stephen. <laughs> One day, PMC. Well, if you do, you need to watch it in Japanese. We already oh, there, yeah, uh, it's found, true. We already we found established the dub, that. Remember. That is the way to go. <laughs> do you want to run away again, she asked. The spark's a realization. I understand now. The thing I should be fighting is the terror inside of me, something I have always been afraid of that I never admitted to myself that existed. The music swells as Roger realizes who he is. Now emboldened with purpose, he calls the big O. Reawakened, he returns to reality, where he unleashes a barrage of the Big O's Moby Dick anchors to finish his foes. That that part of the fight I really did enjoy. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. you know, this is a thing too. Speaking of things that haven't changed, uh, you know, it, the the Big O season one was very good about introducing a, a novel method of finishing off foes with with every episode, and and certainly we've we've been introduced to the anchors before. The anchors have been used quite a few times uh, in the first season to great effect. Uh, but here we have like, we have a lot of them 
you know, it's like the um the the Brad Neely George Washington. You know, I heard a motherfucker had like thirty goddamn dicks. Like this is suddenly the big O just has like a ton of anchors and fires them in all directions. No, He's, yeah, the the Mo, the Moby Dick anchors in this scene are absolutely terrific. Yeah, yeah, because because you know you're you're right. They're beforehand. They're never really used offensively. At best, they're used like mobility. Yeah, yeah. He does a sidestep <laughs> uh, when he fights yeah. Azrael. He he hangs from the ceiling when he fights Big Duo. But then just to launch them through some you know, Megaduce's body to destroy them, it's like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. This is extra. Sure. I love it. <laughs> also to really ramp up uh like ramp up the energy. Ramp up the energy, I should say. You have we have a remix of Sure Promise playing. I, do, mm. I, I, I of course I like the original a little more, but this one you can kind of dance to. It's got a beat. Yeah, it's got yeah. that uh, 60s go-go beat to it. It's fun. Nothing will beat the original Sure Promise, though. Oh, no, no. All those Godzilla vibes. Yeah, hell yeah. Let us have the military police retrieve our three gifts from abroad, Alex Rosewater cryptically tells a masked figure in a pinstripe suit. Your wish is my command, the strange figure says, closing out the episode. Crispy. It's crispy. I mean, I still have so many questions. Yeah, about, many, uh, many questions. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll get the name in, in the next episode, of course, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take it from there. Well, I, this may be one question I know you have burning the inside of your pocket. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, this character is inspired and a reference to Jack Skellington. Mm. That is in the Japanese... Oh, I want to say this is the season two regular Japanese box set without the American audio. Uh, it says it next to his uh, character design, Sete, his profile. And it says specifically Jack Skellington. That totally tracks. Oh, it does. I kind of wanted it to be something cooler than that, but I'm okay. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Engine Veer, the biggest uh, Nightmare Before Christmas hater. I don't hate that movie. It's fine. Yeah, um, Stephen here is in the same camp. It's fine. I don't think I've seen that movie. I mean, I've played Kingdom Hearts, so. Oh, right. You know. Well, have you played the Capcom developed PS2 game? I have not. I'm aware of it, though. It's supposed to be fun. Well, before we, I guess, if we're, we're probably going to round out this episode now, I want to bring up two things. These are kind of the things I, uh, well, one thing is just self-indulgence. The other is kind of, um, I guess, my plea to people who may be, distraught with season two or perhaps coming into it uh anew or new for the first time uh let's see let me scroll up i I just want to i want to tell people to please just don't dwell on the why here or or anywhere honestly in season two because you'll never be satisfied because there is no answer you know it's like what is this paradigm don't worry about it You'll think about it for the next decade, and you'll be like that one deviant art comic I found and never found again, where someone's like, uh, the first time you watch Big O, and it's just a normal person, and like the the fourth through fifth time, and they're just you know scribbling all over the walls and trying to figure everything out, and they've got crazy eyes. It's like yeah, that will happen. It happened to me. So just realize now, as you're going into it, there are no answers. How all of these characters are reacting, that's what you're supposed to gain from this. Um, and that you can think about the mystery. Just don't make that your prime 
you know, focus, your prime motivation for most of these episodes because it doesn't lead anywhere. It's it's a fun ponderings, but the the meat's not there. It's how Roger's reacting to where he's placed, I think, is really what Konaka is trying to give to the audience. And then one thing that, um, like this, this is just indulgence now on my part. Uh, so Roger throughout this episode is all, you know, I don't know who I am. I'm not even sure whether my own choices that I'm making are choices I'm making for myself of my own free will is everything controlled. Uh, even if I have nothing, who am I? If someone's still controlling this, but, uh, it, it seems to me, and this is kind of lovely that the one choice that Roger makes at the end of this episode, and it's also the choice that he makes that brings him out of his hallucination, is his choice to, without saying it, choose to love Dorothy. Like, that seems to be the thing that he knows he makes for himself. Um, let me see if I can make sense of my own notes. And yes, you know, look, uh, the man behind the glass, we do have notes, and we are looking at them this whole time. Uh, sorry to spoil the illusion for anyone who may have thought otherwise. Uh, let's see. As I, I wrote that it's like his his plea with Dorothy at the end of his hallucination. Maybe not a plea, but an assertion of his role is defined by slash with our Dorothy. And then, yeah, that his uh, choosing to love Dorothy is perhaps the one choice Roger makes that he knows is free. And that's because, quote, as long as you... Keep calling me that name. I'll be Roger Smith. You know, um, what is it? When when they're side by side in the the scene at the very end, right before the he calls Big O and the hallucination, Roger says it, or Dorothy just says Roger Smith. And he responds, "You called me Roger Smith just now, didn't you, Dorothy?" Then once he's out of his hallucination, what's the thing he says? He says my name is Roger Smith. At the end of that sentence, he just kind of turns around and looks at Dorothy, just shares that glance. That, uh, that was already, that relationship was already being developed in season one. I think we can expect to see that going a little bit further in season two. And I think a lot of that stems from what we saw at the end of this episode in particular. There's definitely an element of, um, of, of, I think two things I would say, which is one is that I think it is, is it is interesting in effect that we that Roger looks to arguably an artificial person for authenticity, for a guarantee of reality. Um, and then the other thing is there is a kind of a romantic element to it. I, the way you've just described it uh, reminded me immediately of a classic, classic jazz song. It's only a paper moon in which, of course, the defining lyric of the verse is um but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me mm. also i just thought about this as well and everyone who's listening stop your stop uh, stop your stopwatches check it off uh, is this the original star- motion picture and star trek the motion picture <laughs> um <laughs> when spock returns to the enterprise he only ever calls uh, Jim Kirk as captain. He never calls him by his, his first name, much less his last name. It's always just captain, 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 captain. 
And it isn't until after he attempts to mind meld with V'ger that when he realizes the coldness and barrenness of V'ger, effectively V'ger um, uh, obtaining Kolinar like Spock was trying to do and seeing how that just ruins. Now, the V'ger is just completely in shambles and in ruins because he has a, a, achieved a similar state of being. Only after Spock sees the futility of that does he refer to Kirk again as Jim. You know, it's just that kind of, it's a reversal. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm now, I now know more. And I know that, you know, pure logic is um, not enough. You know, his, his, the rest of that scene kind of goes with that. I need to go back and confirm this, but I'm actually pretty certain that it may be true. I don't think anybody in Roger's hallucination calls him Roger Smith. Because Angel calls him Major. Right. Yeah. You know, Angel and, definitely and, call him Roger, yeah. And uh, Beck just says, you know, this this lowly man or whatever. And no one else, uh, the, the bouncer calls him Buddy. No one gives him a name until Dorothy calls him Roger Smith. And then that gets him out of his hallucination. So, hmm. Hmm. I think there's something there. What's in a name? All excellent points. PMC, I like you bringing up um, Roger looking to what he saw as an artificial being before because it shows so much growth on Roger's part as well. And it's not dwelling on that fact obnoxiously, like very didactically trying to teach the audience or showcase to the audience, look how much our character has grown. It's allowed to exist more naturally in the text. All right, my friends, it's time for a little negotiation with the dead. Episode two of the Big O two, or episode fifteen of the Big O proper. We'll see how long I can keep these episode numbers going correctly until the end of season two. I mean, how it's hard? Now. How hard is it to add thirteen to another number? You'd be surprised. The second episode of season two opens with a classic monologue from Roger, accompanied by Dorothy on the piano. This city, Paradigm City, is a city of amnesia. One day, 40 years ago, every human and every robot here lost all memory of all events, everything that happened prior to that day. But just like nightmares, memories can appear when you least expect them. classic sitcom style, Roger lectures Dorothy on her late morning or early afternoon playing, which woke him up. Dorothy counters that it's tr a tradition. Roger then lectures Dorothy on the difference between tradition and rules before Dorothy tells Roger he has a visitor. Meanwhile, Norman performs maintenance on the Big O. To its credit, the Big O really has the characteristics of a long-running sitcom, Season one's only 13 episodes long, but by this point, I feel like I've known these characters for years, watching them interact with one another over several seasons. Like, maybe that's because of the production gap, or maybe it's because I've seen season one at this point maybe five times. There's an indulgent part of me that just wants these characters to deal with domestic issues, like Roger and Dorothy listen to music at a jazz bar, Dorothy finds a cat, Dan stops by to get a drink with Roger. We kind of get a bit of that in the audio drama. Like, that's the great thing about sitcoms. They don't definitively end. Like, you've, you're encouraged to imagine those characters' interactions continuing forever. Um, 
Andy recommended you take a drink because he referenced the motion picture. Take a drink because Stephen here is about to reference Master and Commander. Um, <laughs> I think it was, I'm actually referencing the books here, not the film. Joe Walton, one of my favorite science fiction writers, talked about how, like, timeline and time doesn't matter in those books. They're historical fiction, yes. There is a, and it, the, the timeline is supposed to correspond with, like, history. And, of course, the Napoleonic era only goes so long, and there is a definitive end there. But there is about 10 books that take place in the span of one year, and they follow up on one another. But if you really stretch out all their adventures, it would probably take up 10 years. The time just doesn't really matter. It's meant to continue to infinity. And that's and she has a really like fun observation about how like there's really no ending to Stephen and Jack's adventures. They can they're continuing on forever into World War One, World War Two, and beyond. They're just sailing into the horizon forever. And I I feel like that's like the magic of season one, um, like the magic of the season one finale. Like if we never got a season two, I would imagine these characters just Seinfeld style in this apartment forever having these interactions. Uh, and I could always like return to those same interactions because this the paragraph I just read is like you could apply that really to any like it's the most generic big O summary I could have written. And there's something really comforting to me about that. Just like how I find comfort in my favorite sitcoms, like Frasier, for example, or Seinfeld. Watching this in the context that we did does really, I think, establish that because we had a an extremely atypical episode structurally with the opener. And now we are we are back in it and Dorothy is playing the piano again and it's waking Roger up and you know that's just extremely, you know, back on your you know, back back at Krispy Kreme, back on your bullshit. Uh, just doing it again, and uh, it, it, yeah, it's it is really striking the extent to which it, it feels like we're we're at home again. And yet, on the flip side of that, the rendition of the song "Rundown" that Dorothy is playing is unique to this scene and to this episode. Yeah, there's no 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 raindrop prelude here. No, I do love that piece so much, though. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite episode, Legacy of Amadeus. If I have one big O, like one uh, Desert Island big O episode, that's my choice. <laughs> mm, I know yeah, what uh, PMC's choice is. Andy yeah. is probably season one choice. Oh, let's see. <laughs> you, you put me in a bind because I, I personally feel like the episode that gets to the core, just the core expression of everything big O stands to represent is a Legacy of Amadeus. Because that one just has the 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 starkest and hardest look at just identity, but even further than that, it has a a really in depth look at just essence. You know, an essence as uh, versus existence. Even there's so much going on there, and there's and there's also the, there's just those questions: how how far. Uh, what what world Enstro has made for himself and whether he's made it on his own desires or the desires given to him from other people or the memories that he may or may not have. And I really like that episode. But just because it's the best episode doesn't mean it's the one I like the most. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's a good... I, okay, well, every episode from season one is my favorite. I've said that before. Uh, <laughs> so you're going to daisy chain them together? It, right, yeah, they're they're all one giant episode. Um, hmm. Yeah, but Underground Terror is really quite good too. You know, 
Because that also has a lot of the deep, weird mystery, like the rich world building of... uh, No, I may have to actually say that Legacy Amadeus might be my favorite as well as the best. Because that's the one I always come back to and just see something new with Instro's just agony. I'm just so taken with with Michael McConaughey doing Zabok. Like, I can never, Mm. you know, because then I also hear every other Michael McConaughey performance as well. What's what's one million people, Roger Smith, you know, just just going off. Yeah, I can never. uh, Oh, I was just going to say, but I'm I'm in ignorance as to what comes next. I, I know he's coming. I hope it's in the next two episodes. You know, watching uh, an eighth mess team for the first time was uh, interesting because Michael Mahone- uh, McConaughey plays the uh, was it the 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 Gof Custom pilot. Mm, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Battle. yeah, he does. Yeah, he does do that guy. <laughs> oh god, he's hard as nails in that too. Oh my goodness. Yep. Oh, it's so many so of those good. names have slid off my brain. Those characters. That guy, he has a messed up name too. Um, yeah, Corin Nander comes to mind, but he's from Turn A, so I know it's not that. I'm pretty yeah. sure his name starts with a C of some sort, though. PMC is on the I'm, job. I see I'm him. on it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, oh yeah, Norris Packard, I think is Norris. Ah, so yeah. it, was, it was the Nander part I had in my head. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I guess. Maybe back on topic, though I was like rabbit rabbit holes myself. Uh, Roger's line here when he's talking to Dorothy that, uh, what is it? You know, traditions are very important to people's lives, but under no circumstances should they dictate a person's actions. I've used that in real life with family and friends, but then I usually accompany it with the, the other one I've heard on the internet that uh, traditions are peer pressure from dead people. Mm. <laughs> I agree with Roger's viewpoint here. However, the older I get, the more beholden I am to my own routine. So the little traditions I invent for myself, once that if that's disrupted for me, um, it usually throws me off. Mm-hmm. Tradition is for Catholics. I don't. I don't. I don't <laughs> deal with Catholics. <laughs> Coming hard for the for the papist stuff. Yeah. There. Look, you got to be careful. You never know when a papist is going to show up in paradigm. <laughs> Could happen anytime. Suddenly, PMC has become Zabuck. <laughs> ah, that'd be a lot of fun. I could, I could run around at like Otakon, covered head to toe in bandages. None you of you understand little... <laughs> <laughs> the real truth behind Otakon. What's buried deep beneath the city streets of Washington? None of you DC. want to look at it. The real <laughs> truth of Washington D.C. Now that'd be a little too much to do that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now you just you just give be like still have that message. Just give people copies of Metal Gear Solid Two. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> Soon after, Roger goes to meet with his visitor, an older woman named Kelly Fitzgerald. PMC, we have some Irish representation on the uh, the pod. Important. Predictably, she wants to hire Roger to negotiate with an assassin. She elaborates. My husband, Roscoe Fitzgerald, is a member of the Senate. His friends were assassinated one after another. Why can't the old men who tried to bring order to Paradigm City 40 years ago get any peace? Roger opines that they might have memories of something before the cataclysmic event 40 years ago. Roscoe was killed after the string of murders that occurred recently, the events of episode 13. Mrs. Fitzgerald reveals, 
Roger's confused and not a little frustrated. And he asks, isn't your request for me to protect your husband from an assassin? She replies in the affirmative. Okay, textual question time. Mrs. Fitzgerald is in on the bit here, right? Because the, the bit is that he, they're trying to get Roger to uncover the reality that, you know, he, 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 you know, none of the memories got implanted in a young kid from him because he's an android, right? That's like the whole bit of this episode. That's why she's doing this. That was my read. Okay. Because like, obviously this is intended to be, this is like kind of like a, this is almost like a riddle. It's like, I am asking you to protect my husband, but he has been killed. How does this right. make sense? Like, it, you know, it's, it's, it is, I, I'm offering you a job and the job is, is the riddle, I guess, which I'm also, you know, being like weirdly obtuse about. Yeah. I, it, hmm. Cause I was always confused by this as a kid too. I can say that cause it was 2006, even with context, it's still a little confusing. Um, she has to know something because Roscoe knows kind of the whole idea. And I imagine he would let Kelly know uh, just, just the fact that she could say, is like, Oh, you, I need you to protect my husband, but my husband's dead. It's like, well then she means the memories of her husband in someone else. And that someone else has been killed or, or is he dead because he's an, he's an Android and he was never alive, but he wasn't killed. I guess in that case, it, right yeah no i it i guess the question you're asking is was the faint here that roscoe is supposed to be human she's right in on that yes i would think so because okay. that the point is for roger to find it out and then therefore whoever is keeping tabs on roger would then also find out and set all these events in motion why Roscoe just couldn't do that himself? I don't know. Then there wouldn't be an episode. Uh. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I do think, um, because it's something we we picked up on at the end of our episode one discussion, I want to want to bring it in here as well, which is the um, to the extent to which we can compare contrast the Fitzgeralds and Roger and Dorothy, uh, the, where you have the the human android relationship. I think there is something you can do here with asking about, you know, the memories of Roscoe and how, um, you know, Kelly responds to you know his needs and wants and, you know, how Roger or Dorothy is responding to the other person. Kanaka's writing is uh, tends to invite these questions and Kanaka's writing because it's purposefully obtuse tends to like only shroud these questions or produce more questions. I always used Rogers a little bit from the end of these episode two of season one. Basically, he has these same leering questions about the case, and he's like, ah, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, even though we naturally are going to continue asking and answering these questions, um, that kind of gets at the heart of like a vibes-based viewing experience, which isn't a criticism of the, the, the show that you're watching. Mm -hmm. It's just like a different mode of experience. That's how I tend to be as a critic, a little bit more experiential than predictive. And a lot of my peers are very predictive. I'm dog shit when it comes to predicting what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, but when I'm watching something, I like to immerse myself in the atmosphere of the character interactions oh, yes. or like the sociopolitical context. And I think to what both of your guys are kind of saying with how Konaka writes, this was present in season one as well. And I'm glad we brought up the legacy Amadeus because it may be, uh, one of the places where it's strongest, 
There's a lot of questions in that episode. There's a lot of questions in this episode. But the story goes on. And it goes on without you necessarily having an answer to those questions. But it is maybe not our responsibility as viewers, but it is our position as viewers to just kind of ask these questions and to feel comfortable not necessarily having an answer, but just kind of thinking, oh, well, what if X, Y, and Z in the factual context of what we saw on screen, what what could that lead to? What could that mean? What does it mean that Instro saw himself in his head as a flesh and blood little boy? Like, what does that mean? This doesn't really impact the story that's being told, but it impacts this character. And yeah, a lot of that's going on here as well. And that's one of the things I really kind of... To what you're saying, like the vibe-centric experience with with a piece of media, that's definitely true here. And that that is what brings, at least me and I know other people, back to Big O. Because watching robots blow up other robots is always fun. But that can get old. It hasn't happened to me yet, but I guess it could. Uh, <laughs> but just having all of these character dynamics and these character interactions with mysteries, unsolvable mysteries... That is what brings people back. That's what's brought me back 13 times in a row. And what will be a 14th time this year. Yeah, even as an adult, I'm always bad. At, like even, even when I'm taking notes, keeping picture-perfect track of the moving pieces of any case that Roger is trying to solve. It, it, it always slides off. I think it's by design, Purpose Fan Konaka's part, but it like slides off my brain every single time. Cut to Mrs. Fitzgerald's mansion, to which Dorothy accompanies Roger. Standing next to a wheelchair-bound elderly man, Mrs. Fitzgerald introduces the pair to her husband. Welcome to the study of the dead, Mr. Negotiator. He goes to elaborate that it was, in fact, their alter egos that were murdered, not them. Apparently, the victims from episode 13, all of whom were in their 20s, had begun remembering events from before the fall. Memories that belong to these senators. Who could be so fixated on memories that we ourselves were unable to revive? He asks. All right. I forgot the initial faint is the alter egos. And then you discover that the alter egos weren't actually present for Roscoe. Right. Okay. I remember the initial faint. Now that was the step I forgot. <laughs> See, it slips right off your mind. Yeah. No, no, it's true. Oh, look, I'm not going to be a- controlled by memory, Stephen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I tell my wife all yeah. the time when I forget <laughs> basic household tasks. This is a fun conceit, like young people involuntarily gaining other people's memories and having to deal with the consequences of that knowledge. This has a, the makings of a solid sci-fi short story that, in fact, you know, may have already been written. I think that's the best pitch I can make for Kanaka as a writer, like when he's cooking. It's like a classic Edgar Allan Poe story. This is also really funny, too, because I think, you know, memories run the full gamut of human experience. And so, yeah, sure, maybe the memories are the big questions. What happened to Paradigm City, et cetera, et cetera. But what what if the memories are just like, I don't know, uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet? (laughs) It could be anything. That's something else if you, like, really want to look at the world of Big o, the big O in a material sense. Sometimes memories are abstract things, and sometimes they're like fucking boxes that you could pick up and you know hunt for. Right. 
the final scene of Winter Night Phantom, right? I mean, that's the perfect example that that Dastin has. Yeah. And this is perhaps exactly where I start having very big problems with this episode. Uh, so I mentioned this in our history episode where, and you guys kind of did earlier, where it's like you're following up on a cliffhanger that was never supposed to be followed up on. What what do you do? And I said it's kind of like a perfectly wrapped present that you need to add things to. But the only way to do that is to mess up your wrap job and then kind of put it back together afterwards. And it's never going to look exactly right again, trying to make these connections to things that don't actually have connections. Uh, but yeah, this is, I think this is our first glimpse of all of the many narrative-breaking plot holes that Konaka either has to or accidentally does introduce to the second season. Um, let's see. I feel like it works in its own rights because it is making just a good story from here on. But it just it it really doesn't agree fundamentally with what was already instituted in season one. Uh, like like you know like someone paid for a continuation of a story that had nowhere to go. Uh, strained laughter. Open parentheses. Don't worry. I love season two. It's fine. Uh, close parentheses. Um, for like, uh, let's see. Uh, this was said in, when Kelly was talking to Roger. That Roger's like, some people think that uh, the uh, senators were killed because they might have had something to hide, like memories. When was that ever said? That was never Sybil's motivation in season one. She just was doing what she felt was right and to get revenge on these senators. Uh and skipping forward a bit, the, it's instituted that all of the senators had alter egos and that all of them were killed. We will note that there are 15 senators and only four people on RD's hit list, one of which was Roger. So there's only three murders as compared to 15 senators. Uh, and then let's see. It's, I think it's in this scene, it's also said that every single senator was killed. Except we clearly see that uh, Oliver Garland survived the attack at the amusement dome in episode uh, 11, I think, Winter Night Phantom. So he's still alive. I, I mean, unless he died off screen. But then we also only have reports in that episode of maybe four other senators dying. So five out of 15 is not all of them. And if five of them died, there's still only three young people who had died. Uh and it's it's really just a fact that the the entirety of this episode hinges on that, and all of that is wholly wrong and inaccurate. And I I don't see how Konaka uh, got this wrong unless a this is the only way he can make the entire second season work, or b this is a clever conceit that even maybe the memories of the audience are faulty, like everyone else is in the show. I doubt the latter, but I also just, I know Konaka is smarter than this. So, I don't I don't know where to go with this, but it's very, very, it's, I don't know, it's stressing, it's stressful to me just to see what you have to get wrong 
and so obviously wrong, so brazenly wrong, just to justify this story as it is in season two, to invoke Guy from Galaxy Quest. Did you guys even watch the show? <laughs> I definitely... Might, okay. I was going to say, uh, uh, Galaxy Quest is also the eighth best Star Trek movie. Um, <laughs> Love Galaxy Quest. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> the thing that really struck me, and... and uh, you know, we we talked a little bit about comparing the the new animation versus old animation, um, but it also means that we have flashbacks. We have old animation present, and we also have direct callbacks. You know, Andy just mentioned a bunch of them uh, in the context of this discussion, and it definitely made me wonder if, like, like to me, there's whenever you have flashbacks like that that are like taken directly. There, it introduces a question of like budget, <laughs> of like what do we what do we got here to work with? Uh, yeah, this is the traditional clip show justification. You know, we we gotta we gotta catch up. We're running out of resources, and it does make me wonder if um, if that's a reason for some sloppiness. Because yeah, if you do look at these things, if you do remember the hit list, if you do remember the stated motivations, if you do remember who was on the hit list. Uh, these things do not very clear. This is not, we're not reading deeply into this <laughs> very much on their face. Do not line up. Uh, and so like, wh- why is that in? And for me, I'm, I, I like definitely find myself wondering like, okay, they haven't seen it for two years and we need to reuse the footage. Just go, which it, it feels like I'm, I'm like, sh- like shaming them, but like, no, nah, dog, it's, it's fine. Like I get it. Like it, I wish it could be cleaner. I wish it could be neater, but you know, this is where we are. Yeah, I I do note that I I think I can appreciate tying these two threads together, episode 11 and episode 13, because it's clever. Uh, Outside of the obvious plot holes, I I do think it is a good way to set up the continuation of this story. Something as clean as a terrorist attack and something as nebulous and malleable as you know young people remembering things and tomato allegory from episode 13 kind of pulling those two things together like it's a clever idea i can't exactly hate it i do just i'm just always on edge when it's just like but all of this is wrong i have a note that addresses this point later but i do agree with what you're putting down andy and pmc okay roscoe knows for a fact that the assassin is an android but did this android awaken on her own and act on her own, he rhetorically asked. Mrs. Fitzgerald then hands Roger a check. He concludes that first he'll have to find the person he'll be negotiating with. Is this check for like a paltry sum of money? I remember re- look, trying to read the check amount and it was like 36 bucks or something. I, I might have to go, but sorry, this is just, just popped into my yeah. brain. As it's not like a box severance check. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's right. Yeah, like it's like oh, like okay, sure, I'll do whatever for this. Um, all right. Well, hey, hey, sorry, <laughs> I was like, wait a second. No, no, it was something right. I just it's thought uh, of um, while the, we the were pay uh, to the pay to amount is asterisk asterisk thirty dollars and eighty five cents. Yeah, what's I up believe. with that? I have no idea, but I forgot who said it. But that is the exact same pay to amount that was on Schwarzwald's severance check. But the written out amount is like a hundred billion dollars. Right, right. So I don't, I don't know what the asterisk asterisk 
uh, $30 or something is supposed to be. Is that like double dollars? Like, are we in are we in Trigun? <laughs> Trigun Terror. Yeah. <laughs> PMC is always good for pointing this out. Whenever I'm taking notes and there's like the fine print on something, I'm like, I'll keep moving. PMC will touch. Uh, touch on this in the episode <laughs> i do really <laughs> i do really like this check like so much there's a lot of this season does have a lot of good like written details like your your financial tuition any town usa any town usa kills me that's so good let's see is two one two one seven seven eight is located in northern maryland the zip code so there you go Oh, and this is uh, actually this is a very, this is a, a mirror of a scene used in Fritz Lang's Metropolis. I don't remember the exact context of a scene, but one of the cronies of the big bad is hiring. I think our main negotiator character, and he actually does lift up a check. Uh, I think this it's a uh, the camera is semi far away from him, and then it cuts to a very very close up of the check filling up the whole frame and the guy's eyes just sitting right above it. I'm like, oh, okay. And I've never read anywhere that uh, Konaka or Katayama or Sato had any inspiration from Fritz Lang's Metropolis, but it's written throughout the entire show. I don't see any other possibility. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about it later, but even Glinda's design, I've seen comparisons between the main robot in Metropolis and its design. Mm. On the car ride back, Roger sags into a brief P.I. monologue. R.D., an android that looked like R. Dorothy and was able to kill. Before heading home, they stop at Big Ears Bar for info. My- there's a great there's a great guitar riff that is playing here that just that like it complements the scene and Roger's actions perfectly, like being on a mission, not necessarily getting answers and just like he's hustling. But there's also like a meandering quality to it. Turn A has a great track that is reused again and again that has a similar feel to it. I want to point out that that song on the soundtrack is titled Chains, I believe. Mm. And it is very, very good. Uh, The reason I was laughing a few moments ago is because the rest of that line is, you know, RD, an android that looked just like R. Dorothy and was able to kill. Roger asks... I probably should have asked more questions at the time. I was like, yeah, you probably should have. Oh, oh, wait, this was a, a, a story that was never supposed to go anywhere. Oops. I don't know if that's just like a gentle prod or just kind of a wink at the audience. Be like, hmm, I probably should have asked more about that. Too bad I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it does feel kind of like, um, you know, it was uh, like, like the lampshading. Like, oh, you know, I really should have. Man, why why were we in such a rush at the time? Isn't that weird? (laughs) (laughs) There's other examples from pop culture of shows that weren't supposed to get a follow-up, and like the writers kind of wrote themselves into a corner, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I know I've talked about this, like, on a mic before. I just can't remember the show. Yeah, I feel like when you think of, like, classical examples of, like, maybe we shouldn't have explored the mystery further... Um, I have not finished it because it's like my backup, backup, backup show that I only go to <laughs> when everything else has been watched. But me and my wife have been meandering through Lost, mm. uh, and I think we're only like towards the end of season two. And we, it is such a low commitment for us, but it's like such a funny show to come back to and be like, "What were they doing in this? Like they're on an island, I guess." There's like weird shit. Like, but I think it's the same kind of thing where I, the the sense I get from talking to people about it is like. 
what was the mystery? I mean, maybe honestly, um, to to take an example that maybe I think Stephen and I would definitely know. I don't know about about Andy, but like, you know, maybe we didn't need to have so many Metal Gear solids. Like maybe maybe after uh, two or three, we should have quit. Which to be clear, I like all of them. I I am I will I will go to bat for four and five and three and two is the best one, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but like. If you're a person who's like solely focused on like the plot, I do not think they're going to be rewarding for you in the long run. Mm. You see this too with like in the age of like Big O was Big O two is kind of before its time, but like in the era of streaming, when you have these big streaming services like cherry picking beloved cult franchises and giving them a second or third or fourth season, like returning them to airways, so to speak, like shows that had like a real abrupt ending that maybe never needed to be followed up with in the first place. But not nothing that really I could use as a parallel example to the big O2. Like Arrested Development coming back. Did that show need to come back? No. But I can't also make it like a like a really meaty comparison with the big O2. Steven, if only you'd watch Twin Peaks. Jeez. Come on. Twin Peaks might be the, the exception that proves the rule in that case. <laughs> hmm. I will soon next five years i borrowed i have um my co-worker is a big twin peaks head and i literally i borrowed even though i have like have it on a file drive somewhere i borrowed his disc at his insistence like two summers ago i was going to watch an episode a day over the course of a summer i just i never even started but i couldn't keep up with that the podcast commitments and like other recreational activities but i know i need to watch it and i will what's the bar called again the speakeasy speakeasy Speakeasy. yeah yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same name in both in both cities. Mm. That's true. Big Year is clearly uncomfortable conducting business with Dorothy present, but they continue anyway. It may be that 40 years ago, androids that looked just like humans were nothing unusual, and they lived ordinary lives right alongside humans. But there probably isn't anyone in Paradigm City now who could build something like that, aside from that man who died a while ago. God, I love... There- I love, sorry, I just need to compare Big Ear to Lord Genome because I just have that Jameson Price in my ear right now, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> um, Andy, go ahead. No, it's, uh, there's another plot-breaking issue uh, with this scene in particular I'll come up with in a minute. But I, I really like this scene uh, simply for the fact that it's just another example of uh, how close Roger and Dorothy are continuing to get um Mm. because at this point roger is bringing dorothy another level deeper into his job so um you know roger's embarrassed about it as a suave professional 26 year old might be uh but he relents because he sees and agrees with our dorothy's interest and desire to learn more uh both about life in general and about roger specifically i noted i think a couple of years ago in that one giant thread I made and after episode eight, which is missing cat. Uh, that's when Roger kind of truly sees and accepts Dorothy's innate humanity. Uh, she begins accompanying him on jobs first to the actual negotiation process in episode nine, uh, being involved with the actual detective work in episode 10 uh, which is Damon Seed. And then now to his innermost sanctum, you know, talking to big ears, getting the actual information that he needs. And I just, 
and it's it's just a sweet moment. You know, it's a it's a little bit of a um not a cringy moment. It was just that Roger's the one who's kind of embarrassed, but it's good. It's just another not so screaming example of their continued closeness. Uh, and that's something I always like to see. It's very, very intimate to show your your loved one your big ear. <laughs> I'm sure by this point, too, there's not a lot of, like, preamble to Roger inviting Dorothy to tag along. It's probably just like a head nod, like, I'm going out. You want to come? Back on the road, after his inconclusive visit with Big Ear, Roger thinks to himself, no one will ever know why Wainwright had enough memories to construct an android and a Megadeus. But I should have been more suspicious of why R.D. looked like Dorothy. Yeah, no shit, Roger. <laughs> Interrupting his thoughts, Norman calls Roger through the Griffin's built-in monitor to tell him that he's both finished repairs on the Big O and finished dinner. Roger apologizes, saying he won't be home until late. All right, this well, is... Oh, go ahead, Steven. I was going to say, I love the little monitor on the car. Obviously, it's like a nod to spy films, Bond in particular. My first pull is Austin Powers, because that's what I grew up with. And just like <laughs> Basil, Basil Expedition calling Austin in the car. And just his... Uh, I can't remember the actor who plays him, British actor. And just his head appearing in the car monitor. And then to talk about something so you know inconsequential as dinner, yeah. you know, you would think you know you'd see Q or M on the monitor being like, "This is your next big mission." You know, don't don't screw it up, and you'll get killed if you don't do X, Y, and Z. And Norman's just like, "Hey, you know, I made breakfast. Or I made dinner. Are you actually going to be home tonight?" <laughs> Every time I see this scene, I think that Norman's going to say, "Oh well." I guess I'll see if the dogs are hungry, but no, that's from, I think it's from Batman Returns. I always get that mixed up in my head. Mm. I know the, uh, so I actually got that wrong. He talks about that where he's like, I should have thought about this more that our Dorothy looked like RD. That was in this scene, not the one before. Still funny. Um, there's two, two things I want to kind of bring up, uh, both in this scene and just, just the previous one. Uh, a, how Big Ears is pondering about how there used to be androids so human-like they lived happily ever after with humans. He doesn't say it especially like that, but I think that's how Dorothy is probably reading it because uh, that's something that she's kind of been wondering since Episode 9, uh, specifically with her and Roger and those two questions she had in the episode. And I just thought it was a really nice, kind of quiet moment for her. I believe the camera even switches to her for a moment right after uh, Big Ears makes that statement that there used to be androids so lifelike they lived along with humans happily. Uh, the, the other thing, though, is less happy for me. <laughs> Ray says, like, you know, there probably isn't anyone in Paradigm now who could build something like that, aside from that man who died a while ago. Um, Let's see. Oh, right. Um, Timothy never built Dorothy one or two. Soldano did. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can't we're, swing we're, a dead cat in Paradigm City without hitting some scientist who has knowledge of deep dark secrets. Right. As I guess no one will ever know how Wainwright had enough memories to construct an android in the Megadeus because he didn't. 
Uh, the the upcoming part we're about to get to with Timothy, uh, with this episode, really sets Timothy up as way more important than the plot originally made him. Yeah. And it's weird. Like, for a man who only had memories several days before his death, he sure apparently was involved with a lot of stuff and also apparently had plenty of money to use, except that he didn't. And that he has all this tooling in his mansion that he explicitly didn't have to make either androids or megaduces, hence his whole reason for needing Soldano in the first place. And also for selling Beck, I think it was selling Beck the design blueprints for Dorothy 1 so that he can actually even have the money to pay Soldano. I just, I can't let it go. I can't let it go, guys, because it's just... All these very, very important details are just very, very wrong. And this episode in particular, <sighs> it's like Soldano's never mentioned again. And he's equally as important as Wainwright. <sighs> anyway. Yeah, you see this happen sometimes <laughs> with shows that disappear and then come back years later. And they treat the original show as like a, the sacred text and like put it on a pedestal. My comment later is going to get up, get to this a bit, but like they can't escape the first text. They always have to pay devotion to the first text. Uh, why not just write a new character at this point? It, right? Yeah. Don't 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 undo what has been done for the sake of just making more. Which is kind of where I rag on people who want a season three of Big O. It's like, why? Where would you go? You can't do anything anymore now. <sighs> anyway. Later that evening, Roger and Dorothy arrive at the Wainwright estate. They proceed via an elevator up to the top floor, Dorothy seemingly unaffected in the presence of her progenitor's home. Once they arrive at their destination, they realize that the top is coated with copper plating. It's obvious to me now that Dr. Wainwright must have been afraid of something. Worst Airbnb I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the review is just, I don't know about this fucked up elevator. No no, no reception signal inside the building. What's up with that? Goes from floor one to floor whatever. Nothing in between. Listen to this podcast now that I love me a fucked up mansion full of secrets. Like I, I'm a fan of gothic literature, so of course I like the, like the setting. And boy, the Wainwright estate does not disappoint. I'm also convinced that its design was based on the Tower of Terror. I have no primary source uh, evidence for this. Uh, Tower of Terror being the famous Disney World ride, like right down to the elevator that Roger and Dorothy ride up. Now, there is a Japanese Tower of Terror. Uh, it, was in, it was built in Disney Sea, which is the second Disney park in Japan. But I, I fact-checked this. It opened in 2006, three years after this episode aired. But Tower of Terror is such like a piece of Americana, like back in the 90s or the early 2000s, that... They could have pulled on it. You know how much Karayama and Sato like Western pop culture. It's not out of the realm of possibility, and Disney branding is super popular in Japan. Have you been on the Tower of Terror, Stephen? Yeah, senior year trip. Um, for listeners who don't know, my, my wife is a card-carrying Disney adult. If I go to Disney now in the year 2024, I will not ride the Tower of Terror. I was coaxed into it by alleged friends back in high school during so this was trip. yours you're not not you not one you were chaperoning or something like that i don't know oh no i will okay. take i will not i will not <laughs> even my students can't convince me to go on it. i'm not 
I'm not chaperoning it. It's funny you ask this because <laughs> the person who chooses who goes on the Disney trip, and I like to bust his balls for it all the time. He's very <laughs> secretive. So it's kind of like the the big O stinger is like, you'll get a call in the middle of the night. Just like <laughs> Disney. You'll get a text message cryptically. Ring, ring. Disney World. <laughs> I'm hoping, I'm hoping to go next year. I don't know why at this point. Yeah, I thought you just said you don't want to go. No, I won't go on rides with the kids. Okay. It depends on like who's chaperoning. That's the thing as an okay. adult. Do I, a lot of people I started with have since moved on to other like teaching positions at other schools. So do I want to make small talk with randos or like coworkers I don't know too well? Like that's its own existential terror. Mm. Ring, 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 ring. Picks up the phone. The house of the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's good. Uh, this this isn't a part of the outside ex- architecture of the Wainwright Mansion, but uh, the inside I quite like, even if I don't necessarily know what it's going for, because there's a, there's a lot of double imagery inside the the Wainwright Mansion. Obviously, there's only one portrait of the real Dorothy that has since fallen off the wall and and crashed on the ground. But uh, eagle-eyed viewers may have noted the two mechanical songbirds on pedestals as they're walking mm. into the mansion. Uh, as you get to the top, there's also the two, uh, I guess, slab Frankensteinian beds uh, where uh, creatures may have been made. I think it's a great touch. You know, it just adds to the eeriness and it adds to kind of like, oh, there's there's Dorothy and there's R.D., um, but again, as we're about to see here in a moment, there are actually perhaps three Dorothy's, um, which is like, okay, well, if there's now that ruins all the double imagery, if there's three and then, uh, perhaps only one of them was made there, which is, I might add also impossible, but anyway, no, it looks cool and that's fine. I need to remember my giant robot rules as stated <laughs> by Sid Mead. It just has to look cool. So I need to just, sometimes I need to step back and just remember that. That goes for atmosphere as well. Speaking of all the doubling imagery, um, not that this is a one-to-one parallel, but there's one of my favorite Edgar Allan Poe short stories, which is a story I teach in depth with my students, is The Fall of the House of Usher, a classic mm. piece of Gothic literature. Um, main character, unnamed, char- named, unnamed protagonist, uh, invited to a fucked up mansion by his uh, childhood friend whom he hasn't seen in years. He is also quite fucked up. The, like the last uh, scion of a disgraced noble family. Anyway, there's a lot of doubling elements there. There's a twin motif that runs throughout the story. And you saying that couldn't help uh, jog that memory in me. Unbeknownst to him, Roger trips a detection sensor as they step into the Sanctum Sanctorum, Dorothy's birthplace. Suddenly, as Roger's sleuthing, he hears a metallic bang as Dorothy's body hits the ceiling due to a carefully placed magnet. As if not inconvenienced enough, an incomplete android comes shuffling, Silent Hill nurse style, towards Roger, ready to fight. Roger dodges a few swipes before a red-hooded combatant shoots it dead. I was trying to think of what this interior reminded me of while you two were talking about it. And at first I was going to say something more generic, like um, just kind of like steampunk, that sort of thing. But the specific thing I was trying to think of finally occurred to me 
which is that the interior, because of, I think, the emphasis on, like, the gold and copper colors really makes me think of uh, of Dwemer stuff from Elder Scrolls. I don't know if either of you can hmm. recall, but in, in, um, in the Elder Scrolls setting, you sometimes encounter these elaborately mechanical dungeons of these Dwemers who are these kind of technologically advanced dwarf adjacent guys who all died like a hundred years ago because they uh, dug too deep or something and um but like they all have like this real like consistent color like though in the way that everything within this space has this this like just <laughs> conductive metal color is almost what i would call it <laughs> who's there roger asks isn't it about time you reconsidered your no guns policy negotiator angel asks they banter about clients freedom and her potential foreign birth, I guess I should say the potential origins of her birth, before Dorothy, with a hint of frustration mixed with her typically monotone voice, asks Roger to get her down. You really are such a louse, Roger Smith. We got a bunch of the greatest hits of season one right here. (laughs) Real concentrated. The no guns policy. You're a louse. Um, You know, she's from somewhere else, et cetera. The magnet as well. The magnet. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it didn't bother me though. Like if this were, I'm going to talk about oh, Star Wars later. Of course, I would be all over this if it was Star Wars, or if there's like if there's Gundam the origin, I'm like fuck this, this prequelitis <laughs> shit. But here I'm like, it's fine. Ah, uh, see, this is one of those moments. I think this is the key moment where I messed up watching season two first because this whole scene is predicated on a just in a enormous you know oh crap moment where you've got what seems to be like another rd has awoken as i i don't think i've read anything that is a primary source that says that the the half-built naked android just is another rd or another dorothy but Mm. a lot of her design elements echo with what we see on uh rd and dorothy alike um, and so that's, that's a big deal. But then just to see, um, this cloaked, this red cloaked figure show up again and how I was supposed to think, oh, this is RD and now we're in extremely big trouble and me to just be like, oh, okay. Who's this? Who's this red person? That's neat. Just completely lost on me in in 2006 and then coming back to it now, well, not now, but watching the show for the first time all the way through when it aired on Adult Swim that year, being like, oh, crap. I'll never get to experience that again. (laughs) Soon after, Roger loads a disc found in the estate into Dorothy. Processing the data in real time, she informs Roger and Angel that the memories of senators were implanted into multiple people, all of whom have been murdered, minus one. Furthermore, it turns out that there was never anyone with Roscoe's memories. He never lost his memories. Before they have time to let this revelation sink in, Norman, as nonchalantly as possible, calls to tell Roger that a Megadeus is attacking the domes. Keeps happening. <laughs> All right, so this is uh, Glinda. Uh, we haven't actually, I feel like we haven't talked about a new mech design in a while because we watched a string of turn A episodes without a new mech design. Uh, episode one didn't really have two uh, new mech designs. Episode two does, however. Uh, I think the Glinda. I'm in. I'm pro Glinda. Fucking rules. I'll never not pop for a mech in heels. And the fact that it has a sword 
only sweetens the deal for me. I would also it, it, say I really appreciate a mech with that sort of um, that sort of ring or halo structure. Uh, I think the Glinda, you can make an argument, is a is a distant cousin of the Gundam short set from which Mercury. It's got mm. that same kind of ring structure on the head, or even just the Gundam Stargazer. It's not on its head, but it just has that ring around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, is is this the first armed Megadeuce we've seen? It's like a Dorothy one has like whips and claws, yeah. but those are inherent to its design. Um, Dagon has missiles and an anchor hand. I mean, Azrael shoots plasma beams. See, I'm trying to think of, but I think I want to say this might be the first one with just an extant external separate weapon that it can unsheath and use. Yeah, because it, pu- it like pulls it out of the out of its leg, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it just pulls out a hilt, and mm-hmm. then the sword yeah. expands out of right. it. And a terrific scene of it, Very the camera good. following it as it goes up like that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm very nah. excited about the the new uh, Megaduces and other mechs we will get in season two. I've seen a few of them. Like I've seen the Big Fowl, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. I've one or two others, but. There must be more than three more, so I'm definitely in store for some new mechs. Andy, these are all Sato designs, right? I believe so. I don't... uh, There are a couple, at least one design I know for sure, that is actually Katayama's. Mm. I don't remember which one it is. It might be the construction robot from a later on episode, but don't quote me on that. But I know for sure... That there is a Katayama design in season two. Oh, cool. I'll keep that in mind if I post on Mecha Day. I always love being corrected by the mechanical designer. Actually, no, that's not me. That's my friend. And he'll at, you know, the, me- the mechanical designer in question will at his friend and I'll feel embarrassed for a day. Yeah. It, it may be the one. It may also be the one. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it may be the one that shows up in episode 17. So you'll be okay. getting to that one soon. It could be that one. I'll have to double check. Maybe if I remember to say something, I will. But I know for a fact that there is a design that was at least originally pinned by Katayama. Mm. And it, it could also be in season one. I don't know. But I know for sure that Katayama is responsible for at least one design in Big O. Also, Glinda, another Wizard of Oz illusion. Like you have the audio drama walking together on the yellow brick road. Um, the question I've, I, of course, keep asking myself is who is Oz? Like, is Alex Rosewater or Oz, or have we not met them yet? Like, is that too on the nose? Is he controlling the strings? Is it Gordon? Yeah. Um, rest assured, it is indeed a Wizard of Oz reference. Um, kind of like with, is it the real paradigm? Is it the fake paradigm question from the previous episode? Feel free to kind of think about the Wizard of Oz stuff that's going to be present from here on out, but don't put too much stock into it. I'll, I'll save you some some head scratching. <laughs> it's important. Don't get me wrong, but it's not as important as the biblical allegory that's going to start pouring out mm. of every every facet and every orifice starting very soon as well. <laughs> ah, jeez. So... <laughs> <laughs> Remember, remember who wrote this? Um, it actually, actually, that allegory goes, actually goes pretty deep in some areas. That I wouldn't really have 
expected like most shows that kind of go in this direction to kind of like understand theologically speaking it's like oh yeah okay i'm i mean this half of this is wrong but it's still interesting that you got this other half right um but no yes it is it is glenda um a note from konaka from season one when asked if dorothy is dorothy and he says, no, if I had wanted that, I would have given her a dog in episode eight instead of a cat. So, anyway. Yeah, I was wondering that. I was, Dorothy was on my mind. As Roger drives over to the east side domes, Dastin and the military police engage Glinda, a feminine-coded Megadeus that's stomping through a posh residential area. Predictably, their artillery bars barrage does little and i love what dastin has to say here like are we fucking completely inept like very a very on the nose comment there fortunately at the just the right moment the big o bursts through the city streets roger soon engages glinda as dorothy and angel approach roscoe who's watching the fight outside his home you know go ahead glinda make the people happy <laughs> <laughs> destroy the financial district yeah, destroy the just it's like when the um the story i think it was like last year or the year before when the capybaras started moving into like the upscale neighborhood in, in some Argentina suburb and everyone's like, go ahead, capybaras take over, take over that neighborhood. Oh, was it that? Or was it the, uh, the Havelina who were invading that golf oh, course? The golf course. I mean, that's also, oh, yes. true. that was another news story. Yeah. The, and then of course you have a bunch of people like, Oh, they're invasive. Like, no, those are the native critters. Okay. And, and it was, it was also like they're, they're not native. But it was their like their area. Yeah, like, that was their spawning area. Right. I was like, well, yeah, they're gonna come back. Right. What did you, what did you expect you, to happen? Just because you tried to build a golf course there doesn't mean that they aren't gonna try and live there. Right. <laughs> nice try. Uh, I wanted to go back shortly to something you had brought up, Stephen, about Dustin's hmm. line there. I do appreciate this is kind of the first peak we start getting uh, to Dustin's newfound reality or really his newfound helplessness uh, and his his inadequacy he's starting to feel for his his own role it's it's you know this we kind of talked about Dawson uh perhaps more positively this time in season one than before but that he kind of knows that things are quite not quite right but he's going to try his best and in the um, the audio drama he kind of brings up that uh, he's like, you know, I know things are wrong, but I have to believe that there was a military police before 40 years ago that I can believe in that would do everything right. So I want to be the embodiment of that, even if everything around me is going wrong and everything, even if everything around me is corrupt and doing wrong, I need to live up to the military police I have in my head. And then here we kind of see him being like, can I even do that? And can, it, can I even live up to this mythical interpretation of the military police when I can't even save this town or this city or this, this suburb? And that will, uh, that will start ringing and echoing throughout him as an individual as this season progresses. So be on the lookout for that. Yeah, that's a nice bit of character development because in episode one, he's talking very heroically about the honor of the military police. And then he has his like 
Dastin's focus, the Dastin-centric episode later in season one when he realizes that not everything is right in the ranks of the military police. And really, um, he's a passive agent who's being controlled by Rosewater and the rest of Paradigm HQ. And then you see, like, through this quick aside that he's coming to terms with this, he's evolving as a character, which is nice. Like, it's this, like, the fact that this is happening kind of in the background is also um, a nice, subtle touch. The fact that you don't really have to draw too much attention, but also it's continuing throughout the show. Roscoe Fitzgerald, Dorothy says... You have always hidden your memories, but wanted someone to know you have them. Until now, you have suppressed this desire. Why now? I'm the same as you, and I don't understand it. Roscoe dramatically stands up from his wheelchair, revealing the multiple cables that are plugged into his back. You're not a human being, Angel rhetorically asks, shocked. At the same time, after a bout of swordplay... Roger finishes off Glinda with a concentrated salvo of purple energy from its usually hidden machine gun. All fucking rules. Yeah, this is this is another example of like, oh yeah, we still got new tricks. Let's go, let's go. We're still doing it. Yeah, th- this attack is called O Thunder, mm. and it's oh, it's a good one. I also find it very funny. Like, I don't know if this was the intention, but when it comes to the revelation of Roscoe being an android but also being old the fact that he can't like it's like he can't hold a charge anymore he has to stay always <laughs> plugged in you know yeah it's like my phone mm-hmm. right mm. exactly and to all those people who out there say oh androids don't they don't age uh, you know like data and the next generation i just invite those people to go back and watch the episode where data's mom as a robot shows up and Jordy says explicitly, almost to the camera, that data ages. So it is kind of weird that well, I mean, we obviously just haven't seen any other lifelike androids in Big O to build that opinion on. But I always did think it was a little weird. It's like, so is is was Roscoe just built old looking? Did he actually like develop wrinkles and age? I don't know. I don't. I don't really care. But it's something I was like, oh. <laughs> Okay. It's kind of like in a Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. I always thought it was weird. It's like, why would a little girl imagine stuffy old Mr. Harriman, this old butler rabbit? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, then my friend uh, Dragacoon, or Dragadx, uh, Michael, on Twitter is like, no, you don't get it. Who else would be the perfect guest for a tea party? Then someone like Mr. Harriman is like, oh, okay. No, that does make sense. So Roscoe could have been made old. Who knows? Or Roscoe, I mean, or, you know, like, as I already said in regards to the, the, the energy thing, but also, like, electronics do age. You know, think of a yellowed old Super Nintendo, right? Yeah, yeah. They age okay. in a different way. Yeah. I'm looking around my room for my Roscoe. It's somewhere around here. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's see. I don't know if we're going to get to something more appropriate to this or not. Uh, we're not. So I think it's interesting. Uh, and I, I kind of, uh, I may have referenced this before, but maybe not that the way Roscoe Fitzgerald is kind of acting in this episode. Uh, I've always read it as being very similar to how, uh, what's his face is Mr. Wise from episode nine is kind of acting. But in a similar vibe, or at least mm. he's acting the way that Roger Smith describes people 
in episode uh, nine where he says that uh, humans always want someone to know they exist. To some people, it's so important to their lives, they rely on it. Or rather, it's so important their lives rely on it. And so it's interesting that at that time, Roger was describing humans. And now we see, what, six episodes later, we see an android basically living the exact same way that his life depends on someone at least knowing that he exists, but more importantly, remembering that he existed. Mm. I have a follow-up comment, but I'm going to save it for the end. So I have one more paragraph. Right. Afterwards, Roscoe produces a disc storing his memories from his head. He says this is the most valuable payment he can give. Suddenly, the pinstriped assassin, whose name is Alan Gabriel, blows off Roscoe's head. I'm sorry, I laughed there, Roscoe. Blows off Roscoe's head with a well-aimed shot and snatches the memories. He then escapes. Memories in hand. He has like a little extendable hand, right? That's how he yeah. grabs him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very fun. Very like Silver Age Batman. It really does feel like you you could imagine after this there's an episode where Roger Smith is running around with the oversized bomb that he has to get rid of, like that old classic <laughs> Batman episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's Actually, right up there with like a geesing as like classic Batman villain. And when you bring that up, I'm thinking in my head, because uh, I know something else that happens with Alan Gabriel later on, but now it's like, oh, kind of like, uh, oh, what's his name? It was Reaper from Batman Year Two, where uh, I forget the the real point of the comic, besides the, the main point, which is just to make Batman look cool. But he has to fight a guy with a skull face and a red suit uh, akin to uh, the armor Dracula wears in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And uh, he's got scythes for hands that come out of, like, maces. So his hands go into maces, like morning stars. And out of the morning stars come giant scythes. And Batman's like, hmm, I can't fight him with my hands. I know. I'll go to the evidence locker get the 1911 that Joe Chill used to kill my parents, and then shoot the Reaper. (laughs) Well, I want to say the Reaper has other things he can put on his hands, and it's just the fact that his hands are kind of this malleable part of his character, and that knowing that uh, Alan has a a whip hand, a lasso hand, made me think of that when you brought up Batman. Mm. The Reaper is dope, though. It's a great story. It's... (laughs) You come from Batman Year One, where it's just like, oh, Batman's just a kid and he's failing, and he can his all of his, his gadgets fail, and it's really a story about Gordon and how the police just don't work. And then Year Two is, I have a gun, and I'm fighting the the Grim Reaper. <laughs> <laughs> I love '80s Batman; it's great. I think this maybe in the '90s, maybe the same time as Ten Nights of the Beast. I love weird Batman. Same. <laughs> I like Batman when he's either detective or weird or both. So yeah, in classic Big O fashion, like this episode generates more questions than it answers. Namely, like why did Roscoe hire Roger? Like even though this episode doesn't say it outright, it suggests that Roscoe wants a safe home for his memories. Like in light of his declining health, he mentions that he's breaking down a bit, uh, for lack of a better phrase. He might also be aware of the changing status quo that Alex alludes to in episode 13 like he knows like shit's going down like maybe he knows like 
Alex says there's been awakening when those three, four, and Megadeuses appear on the horizon. Like, maybe Roscoe knows that they're in the endgame now, and he wants a reliable party to hold on to his memories and maybe act on that information. He might also want to know who wants his memories in the first place, and the best way to do that is to hire Roger to do that dirty work. I'm, I'm leaning more that he's old and wants Roger to have the memories and maybe Roger to act on those memories. Um, but all three of the above could be possible motivations here. I think when you get to the next episode, which, like I said, I mentioned in our uh, before we started, I kind of want to bring something up that's kind of a spoiler. I want to keep that to myself because I want you guys to experience that when you watch the next episode because it, it's going to make you come back to this and I think clarify or ask some more questions. Of course, now I forgot where I was going with that, but I think it's it's definitely coming along the lines of um, uh, the episode nine conceit for me. It's just like, I want to be wanted. And it's like, you know, he's married, he has Kelly, but it's just like, if I die, and then if Kelly dies, then then what happens? We have no children. You know, the world has completely forgotten about me because I obviously wasn't important enough to have my memories put into someone else to have them be remembered. And this, this this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough to just be forgotten by this world. And so then to hire Roger to inform somebody that he still has his memories and to be pursued even to death like the other senators were, it's a weird kind of motivation to just want to be hunted basically but it's you know who knows what motivations happen when uh, you don't even know who you are or you're just plagued with that uh that unknowledge that's a good point i'm excited to uh i'm actually excited i have a few uh concluding thoughts here but i'm very like warm on the opening of uh, the big o season two for a variety of reasons i like returning to something um like after the dust has settled, like the any controversy surrounding the Big O two is old news. Like the I'm going to talk about this soon enough, but like the Big O two has been litigated, and that all has happened in the past. I like just after the dust has settled, visiting this work for the first time and be able to review it on its own merits. And plus, considering the anime landscape of 2024, there is nothing like the Big O period or the Big O two. And there's just something very quaint about looking at this through a fresh set of eyes. So some, I have two concluding thoughts. Number one, I like this episode. Uh, mm. Even though we don't get closure, the mystery of Wainwright, his creations, and the senators was enough to pull me through the episode. I do want to get to the bottom of this. And as a viewer, I have the privilege of ignorance. Like You two know the end game. I'm seeing this all for the first time. And it's a bit electrifying because I really don't know what's going to happen. It's a good On place to hand, be. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I I don't want to leave this place. I'm sure I'll feel pretty warm overall in the how the season concludes, but still, this is the, the best place to be. I am a little cooler on 15 compared to 14, or episode 2 compared to episode 1. Like, I know this is a common talking point. Like, this is, the, this is very much the basic bitch complaint about the big <laughs> O2. People have been litigating the second season for over 20 years, but you have to allow me this indulgence because I'm going into this for the first time. Negotiation with the Dead addresses plot points from three season one episodes, going so far as to splice in old footage to create that connective tissue. And that can be satisfying. Like, who doesn't like when questions are answered, even in abstract ways like the Big O does? It does also limit the scope of the storytelling. Like, I know Big O2 is going to take some wild swings later on, 
but it does make this world seem more insular and claustrophobic as if the big O2 can only exist in, in relation to what came before it and not by itself. The most egregious example I can give of this is, I put down in my notes Clone Wars, but really any Star Wars show. Like, Clone Wars is a show I'm fond of, but it also pays slavish devotion to the films that it's that spawned it and never really has a chance to become its own thing. Like, this is really the Star Wars problem because you have the Lucas films and everything that comes after it really just has to fill in every dangling plot thread or unexplained question from those films or just constantly reference characters who exist in those films as opposed to creating a new cast of characters. And The Big O2 has a similar issue with that, so far at least, for me. Yeah, I think The Big O2 is, is if, I had to, if I had to put in my, my good and bad marks so far, I think on one hand, uh, The Big O2 has shown it is willing to commit to being different. We have new characters, Alan Gabriel, the Fitzgeralds. Uh, we have a newly, a wholly new type of episode in the premiere, in the form of the premiere, really a different, a different kind of creature. Those are things that I think are are really promising because I my memory of it was that too much of it was those flashbacks that you know Steven's being critical of, and I, and I think reasonably so because you know the the flashbacks a prevent you from doing your own thing, and also b as 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 Andy has effectively pointed out, um, you can pretty easily trip over yourself trying to make use of those. Uh, you know, you can forget about Soldano versus Wayne Wright, for example. Um, so I, I think you know, initially I am. I'm excited. To be, I, I always figured I'd be excited to be returning. I think seeing the new stuff be present, seeing uh, like not, not, not just, Oh yeah, it's Konaka, but it's Konaka doing, you know, the, the full swings I think is, you know, the, the best thing you can ask for from this production at this point. And it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh Lord. It's yeah, coming. It's, I'm at a weird kind of place with canon because uh, I feel like if you're going to write something, then it makes sense to appreciate, I guess, your own art if you're the same author. And if you're a different author, to appreciate the the art and the the details and the dedication that that truly matter to creating a cohesive story i think the the example i brought to myself because you know i, I talked to myself obviously because i need an expert opinion like i don't <laughs> care if like in the han solo story that his blood types the wrong blood type because that person didn't read like issue 37 of Starlog, where i don't know george lucas just kind of said it offhand like that stuff is cool to me that level of detail but if you're going to get something that innocuous wrong or just leave it out, that doesn't, that just doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, that's a cool thing to know, but to be slavish to that level, I, it, it can do a disservice to, um, to just creating more. And Star Wars has a particularly bad problem because they did go to that level <laughs> with, a lot of these characters and a lot of these sub points, like the person who bought Luke's speeder and is on screen for like 20 seconds in the background has an entire entry on Wikipedia. And I think also like a comic one shot. It's like, why? I don't care. 
this i mean it's i guess it's cool for just those people who need to have every aspect of everything explained to them and just to have everything mean something but on the flip side when it comes to very serious things like understanding that not all the senators died because you said that on screen like i said that's the other side of the coin where it's like you should at least remember small to very important things like forgetting that the senators didn't all die is kind of being like, oh well, I've, well the the Death Star never had a thermal exhaust port. What are you talking about? We just we just blew it up with a bigger bomb. That that feels to me like it's that big, and I I don't know where the the line is to be crossed when it comes to appreciating canon, but when it destroys uh, consistency or a coherency with a story. I think that's a good place to start drawing your line. Yeah, when it, when it forces you, the viewer, to ask these questions, even if you're in the camp that canon doesn't really matter, but you're still asking these questions as you're going along, these, these little bumps on the road, then that definitely yeah. impacts the experience. Right. Now, and to your point, too, which is exactly what episodes 7, 8, and 9 should have been, it should have just been completely different people. Yeah. You know, and, and not just A New Hope again. Or and to that point, that's also why the Mandalorian used to be so good is because it literally had nothing to do with Star Wars. It took place in the universe, but it finally, it was a piece of Star Wars, I said merchandise in my head, uh, Star Wars merchandise that just recognized that this is a huge galaxy. Anything could be happening anywhere. So... You know, we respect that the Death Star is not just suddenly rebuilt for some reason, but we also never have to mention Luke because he effectively doesn't exist in this narrative. Yeah, Cosan. Yep. Yep. And I'm the star of Sicko, and I haven't been able to finish uh, season three of Mandalorian. <sighs> Steven. <laughs> I'll do it eventually. No, you don't have to. It's fine. No, no I will, though. I just, will. Just watch Andor. Right. I'm the Sicko. I will do it. I didn't even watch season two of Mandalorian. That the season one finale left me in a bad spot, mm-hmm. and then when I when I saw what they were doing in season two, it's like that's what the finale <sighs> of season one uh, made me afraid was going to happen, and then it happened. I made the right choice not to continue. I will say there is one se- early season two episode that's just they get stuck on an ice rock, and you know they got to fight some shit. And like the, the rebel cops show up and it's the best episode of Mando because it's just about them being stuck somewhere. Uh, oh, it's perfect. very good. So that one I can recommend, but I think the things that you got impressions of what were bad about season two also did sour me by the end of it. So you're, I don't think your perceptions are wrong at all, but I would single out that episode. If you're like, man, I'd love to get stuck in like a creepy ice rock. Oh, is that the one with the spiders? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm good. down with that's that. I'm down with those spiders. Which is what's really funny about that episode too is that like multiple people, I was like, "Hey, this episode was a lot of fun," and they're like, "This is why you're wrong." And I'm like, "Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I won't bring it that up was again." The, that was the fish egg episode, yes. right? The eggs. Yes. That was the best episode of Mandalorian. It's great. It's 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 basically an episode of Bebop. Is it just a dude? Right. 
you know, work a day guy yes. getting his job done. I had someone dump on me on Facebook. <laughs> someone I hadn't talked to in years is like, oh, hey, I enjoyed this episode. Like, are you enjoying? And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> is he off of that, too? Um, I'm not alone in this camp, but I think there's only like three people with me. Uh, it's kind of how I feel about Cowboy Bebop, but it's the opposite. Mm. Where it's just like 26 episodes, like 22 of them are completely standalone episodes, and it's just people goofing off until they get kind of sad. But it's just people goofing off, having silly adventures and some solo adventures with their respective uh, unique characteristics coming to coming to bear. And those are so much fun. But it's those four episodes or so that try and make a story that are the weakest part of Bebop. Because like you get halfway through, I think it's like episode 10 or 11, where uh, the someone's using Julia's uh, SOS mm-hmm. signal and, and Spike goes to find it. And it's like, oh, this is my... This is my past exposition dump, and all this stuff happened to me. Exposition dump, and oh, you know, this girl and this this guy, and it's like me, the viewer, thinking to myself, I don't care. Like, oh, okay, we're eleven episodes into this show, and suddenly story happens, and then the rest of the show happens. And they never really talk about it again until the end. And it's like. At no point have you made me care about this story stuff. And then the last three episodes or last two episodes is all about it. I don't care. Like, Julia, like, okay. Spike sees, has two different eyes. I don't care. Just get another uh, rock lobster and a, and a refrigerator, please. That inexplicably <laughs> shows up in Space Dandy, you know, a decade later. Like, just give me more of that. Or do the opposite where you have a fleshed out narrative throughout all of these. The disconnect is so strong in Bebop that the when it tries to do story episodes, it just for me personally, it just mm-hmm. falls flat because there's no substance to it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. I, I you know I, I don't you know I I don't discount our perspective. Like I, I, I can make the pitch for, for why it works. And honestly part of my pitch is that like everyone's saying like hey Spike your past sucks. Like actually like Let's let's get on. Let's get on with the dream of the bebop. You know, Faye almost says that like word for word at one point. Um, so I, I think you know, and but if it doesn't work for you, obviously it doesn't work. Um, yeah. But but I guess maybe to tie it back to the big O, you know, we're at this moment of divergence uh, of what you what was like purely. Um, I'm not purely. There was there was developing questions. You know, we mm-hmm. did have, have episodes where we did learn more. About the mystery of Paradigm City, or par- or the you know the corporation of Paradigm, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but here we have you know it's much more explicit. You know, uh, the first season of Big O, I think you you could argue was designed to be in that way of broadcast TV, where you're not always going to be catching every episode. You're not always going to be, you know. I think I think season two, like my guess, I don't remember this for sure, but my guess is it's going to be a little harder. <laughs> you know, if you didn't catch every episode. Um, and so there's a there's a sort of divergence here with the flashbacks, uh, with with the structure, with the more uh, serialized narrative. Um, so I'm very curious to see to what extent it is episodic. This this second of the two episodes that we've discussed tonight are this one was more 
uh, traditionally Big O than I kind of expect remembered it being. You know, mm. with the with you know Norman calling in, Megadeus is attacking, Dorothy playing the piano. You had a lot of, uh, as Steven said, normal sitcom notes, uh, but you also had the flashbacks, which were never present before. Um, so it it is definitely it, it things are things are are conflicting. There is things are butting up against each other. Definitely. I look forward to tracking that further. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. You guys are, as always, so thoroughly welcome. And I am equally thoroughly glad to be here anytime you need it. And anytime now, I need it, for that matter, too. <laughs> the viewers won't have long to miss you. They'll be reunited with your dulcet tones soon. You'll be joining us in two weeks for episodes... So you already forgot the naming, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18? I think it's 17 and 18, yeah. It would be 18, 19, wouldn't it? 18, 18, 19, It's 14, yes. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. We can do that. <laughs> so look forward, viewers, until then. Andy, where can the good people find you online? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, even, in, even in its death throes. Um... It's still rather active. Uh, that will be at Enginevir, E-N-G-I-N-V-I-R. Uh, same handle on Blue Sky. If I have some Gundam hot takes, you'll see those there and not much else so far. Uh, let's see. And then, of course, uh, my my perhaps my biggest accomplishment, though my, my trash posting on Twitter is also an accomplishment, uh, www.thebigoarchive.com uh, There you'll find all of my scans, all of my uploads of my Big O collection that has spawned the past 18 years now made available to all those who are interested to know and learn more about Big O. Awesome. I look forward to future updates. You, you teased us with the uh potential works being translated in English. Yes. Now I'm waiting with a bated breath. We will see how that goes. Probably no updates for this year, but I would personally love to have all of my scripts scanned uh, for mm. the 13th of October. I was actually flipping through those, uh, I think last week or the week before, and there actually are like handwritten edits to some of those pages I'd be really curious to see just what changed because some of these are like entire blocks of lines have been scratched out. Like I just though a bar going through them. I was like, I wonder what that says. What, what else could have been said in some of these scenes as they were originally written? Awesome. Folks, if you want to find out what giant robot FM is up to, of course you can find us like many other people on Twitter, on blue sky, where we'll be posting, you know, updates about what we're doing, as well as uh, memes, memes, lots of memes, already workshopping memes. You don't even know they're 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 everywhere. You cannot you cannot stop them. You cannot avoid them. If you want to help us out, you can always rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Reminder, of course, that our main feed coverage now debuts a week early on our Patreon feed. So if you're listening to us on the main feed and you're thinking, God damn. I could listen to another one of these episodes right now. Well, go to patreon.com slash giantrobotfm and you'll be able to do so. You would be able to unlock 
the week early preview and get on to our discussion of episodes 16 and 17 with um is that with space queen emily with space queen emily an excellent guest to have on it'd be great to talk to her so yeah look forward to that of course that will be next week's episode uh so please please look forward to that if you're on the patreon you'll get access to the patron exclusive discord access to our turn a gundam series called moonrace wireless where we are covering two episodes of turn a gundam per month uh so please look forward to that and also uh the zine plans continue to come along and probably have some more info about that soon and also i think by the time you are hearing this our coverage for uh the month of may will have been decided at that time so look forward to more information on that as well steven anything else i think i got i think that's it that's a comprehensive rundown excellent that's what I, i i aim to please steven you know what kind yes. of what, you know what kind of engine the Big O has? What kind of PMC? It's a V8 engine because it runs on tomato juice.